<laughs> okay, right, that's so. good. That's good. All right. Uh, <clears throat> okay. All right. I've um, I've shuffled some papers around. Uh, now uh, I've chucked a bunch of papers away, and um, we should be rolling. It is the um, weird sort of opening podcast, the opening bit uh, with with not Simon, but uh, Ben Bailey Smith, and not Mark. Uh, but Ro- Robbie Collin. But we're not just butts, are we? We're we're more than butts. More than a pair of the butts. Mark's, the Mark Strong butt game comes up in this week's show. It does actually. Yeah, it pops up. You're right. Yeah, and it's um, I, you know, I would like to think I wouldn't like to think of us. I don't butts. think we're butts, Robbie. I don't. I think we're ands and wives, mate. I think I think we're an and and a wiv, and you can pick who's who. I don't. I don't mind. It's my dream to be an and or a wiv. So. <laughs> As long as we're not butts, we're fine. But a butt does pop up during the the live show, guys. Little little pre warner for you there. Um, so yeah, we've got. Uh, it's it's actually it's it's a show packed with stuff, and it's packed with emotion. It I is. Would say. It's a it's a roller coaster. There's a, there's there's two moments where I got, I'm looking forward to hearing it myself. There's there's a moment where, without giving too much away, I lose it, and there's a moment where Robbie loses it. And uh, I saw I saw a flash of menace <laughs> in Ben's eyes that I've never seen before. And I was the same. Just as we were building up to the news, and you were talking about a, a specific movie that may or may not feature some apps. Um, <laughs> so look out for that. Also look out for the um, the Ethan Hawke interview because. Um, me and Ethan got on quite well, and I've referenced his his outfit uh, a couple of times um, during the show because it reminds me of of our outfits today. We, for for those wondering, me and um, Robbie have a very sort of uh, it's kind of like a unfussy. We haven't tried, but we have tried kind of right, thing. Right, right. But both different colours. It's like when you change the costumes on yeah. Street Fighter and it's the exact same outfit, but just a different combination That's of colours. And we've both got really cool necklaces. Or I like to think mine's cool. Robbie's is definitely cool. Thank it, you very much. Yeah, what, what is it exactly? It's, it's a like, kind of a pointy bird thing. Yeah, um, it, like, yeah, that's why I thought it was like a skull. You know, it's it's, it's kind of cool. It looks like it might have come out of like a Coen Brothers movie or something like that. And that, it just that's struck, exactly struck, actually, the the exact look I was going for was Dead uh, Man, Bard that M kind of vibe in um uh, in No Country for Old Men. There we go, boom. Without the hair, thankfully. Um, but it, it does it does make me think as well. There was a section of the Ethan Hawke interview which actually went on forever, not in a bad way, just because he didn't want to stop talking, which was great. And I thought, oh my god, are we? friends <laughs> no, no, no. it's just professional it's just professional however when he walked into the room for the first time and it was just me and him in the room and every all the pr and, and everybody was in in another room he sat down and immediately said dude that's a really cool necklace and i was i was i was like i could say the same thing about you because he had a necklace with a story behind it as well um and i wasn't sure if the mics were on or off uh but the it as I'm sure all the listeners know, the incredible genius behind this show uh, that is the the production team were recording. And um, I can play you a little clip of uh, the necklace love and a little bit of man love <laughs> between myself and Ethan Ork. Check this out. I love your necklace, by the way. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. my daughter found it in a flea market in Brooklyn. Yeah, well, they're, I've seen them. They're really cool. Yeah, and it's, it's made by Hona and it's called A Little Lady. So, you know... I spend so much time away from her. It's just oh, you can kind of call her and maybe speak yeah, to her. There it reminds me of her. <laughs> um, What's the significance of the rings? The, Are they the rings? rings? Oh. Well, this is this is actually my wedding ring, and this is this necklace that my. Um, here, I'll show you. It's kind of interesting. Um, my wife made, and it's uh, it's all of our names. It's M. 
is Maya's the oldest, and Indiana is the youngest, and Ryan is my wife's name, and Clementine and Levon and Ethan. Awesome. And so it kind of we noticed it kind of looked like miracle. Almost like miracle. Yeah, right. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. And she she made it. Well, she didn't. She had it made. You know, she, she has a friend made. who's a jeweler. Okay. And so they worked this up. Um, but it's super cool. And so when I'm doing a movie. You know, they're always taking on and off your any jewelry. Of course. So, I've lost my wedding ring so, so many, times many times on film sets. Yeah, exactly. So mm. that's why I just wear it here. Smart. <laughs> there you go. A lot, of, a lot of man love and necklace love. So I guess to make it clearer, his, when I said rings, they were rings on a necklace. Yes. Right. And, there was and a lot of very and, evocative clinking there. Well, yeah, there was because we had taken our necklaces off and comparing. And, and when I said mine was a honer, it's because it's a, it's, it's a tiny little... Uh, it's a tiny little um, harmonica. That's amazing. It works, yeah. And and like I say, it's a little reminder of my daughter. But I had a, you know, I was thinking this is great. We're just getting, we're just two guys talking about silverware, <laughs> and and then I had a little moment of, oh my god, you're that guy when he started talking about his kids because I suddenly thought, some or all of these are Uma Thurman's kids, <laughs> right? You know, and you know, when sometimes you're just like, okay, this was really real, and now it's like, oh yeah. Uma Thurman, legends. Yeah, you're you're the famous. You're the famous. I had the little moment of that, um, which threw me out. Um, But yeah, Uma Thurman was was somebody I think, well, I'm still obsessed with, but I was heavily obsessed with as a a youngster. I think we all were. I just found her so unusually beautiful, as well as being an incredible, incredible actor. But um, let's not um, go down Uma Thurman Avenue because we have a show to share with our listeners and one that I'm I'm really happy with because of the the range of emotion on show. It's a smorgasbord. I think so. I would say. So uh, unbutton your shirt down to your belly button, um, pull the neck of your t-shirt down just a touch and <laughs> actually don't do any of that. This is the BBC. Um, please enjoy the show. We'll see you at the other end. Welcome to the show and the start of your weekend. Hopefully it's Robbie and Ben in for Mark and Simon and we're here till four o'clock. Robbie, how are you, sir? Very well, thanks. How are you doing, Ben? I'm pretty good. I'm very excited to be back. Um, so and excited. What, what a week to come back. What a week. To, that's what I always look forward to. Like the, just what absolute classics are going to drop this Friday for the return of Ben Bailey Smith. And what, what have we got? What have we got? Well, we have got the Emoji Movie. Oh. Uh, and... Valerian, City of a Thousand Planets, uh-huh. and Maudie, England is Mine, Williams and the Ghoul. But we've also got the Emoji Movie. Yes, we do. We do have the Emoji Movie. I'm so sorry. I've been so busy. I just couldn't. There was there was like a four to five hour period where I was sort of filing down my nails and stuff. And I just <laughs> didn't have the time to get in and watch this one. Um, in fact, there's other people who are slightly nervous about it. I've, I've got an email why? here. Why? Well, why would you be nervous about I, I the emoji know, movie? I don't know, Rob. But this this is from uh, this is from a teacher actually. I think yeah, Dave, Dave Green, um, who says uh, dear colon close bracket and colon forward slash uh, or their holiday stunt doubles, which I guess is us. Uh, regarding the emoji movie, my good wife and I, despite having no children to take, felt no shame at all attending an early afternoon showing of Despicable Me. Three last week uh, and very much enjoyed it. Um, But as someone who has never owned a smartphone, yes, I'm still using my 11-year-old Finnish brand, four-digit number with threes in it, does calls and texts, one charge lasts a week phone, uh, emojis have somewhat passed me by. In fact, I once read out a notice to my form group at school as follows. 
Donuts on sale at lunchtime, £1.50 per pack from 1pm in the main hall, less than three. Why does it say less than three? It means love, sir, the student said. Uh, How does less than three mean love, I asked. And they said, it's a heart. Look at it sideways. Thereafter followed 30 teenage girls laughing at my ignorance, leaving me feeling somewhat ashamed at reinforcing the detestable and unfair stereotype that is the curse of all maths teachers. So, and here's here's, here's the rub, Rolly. Um, He says, is the Emoji Movie a family-friendly film accessible to all, including the older, out-of-touch, smartphone-less, non-parent that still enjoys Pixar movies, or is it strictly for the emoji-literate future of our society? Please say hello to Jason. Uh, And anyone listening from Queen Mary's High School, which I'm guessing is where Mr. Green teaches. So I don't want to spoil your review. But um, just for those who are, are, are just wondering, this, this specific question, you know, a family-friendly film accessible to all, including those that are out of touch with, you know, the, the constant reference, I would have guessed. Yes, of course. To these, course, uh, yeah. these modern technologies. Mr. Green. Mr. Green. Well, Mr. Green, um, I can assure you that the Emoji Movie is every bit as accessible and comprehensible and entertaining for someone who has never seen an emoji in their life as it will be for someone who uses them every day. Well, there you go. You can hear my conversation with the incredible Ethan Hawke after half two. Uh, Ethan stars alongside Sally Hawkins. It's Hawke and Hawkins in Mordy. Uh, and you can hear my conversation with him after 2.30. And if you, if you want to get involved in the show, don't forget all the usual ways. You can email mayo at bbc.co.uk or text us on 85058, Facebook and Twitter at Wittertainment. Um, if, if you want to see the live streams as well, get, get involved. Check us out on camera and you'll notice that I've... Uh, I've gone for the open shirt uh, and uh, down to the belly button, but with the T-shirt underneath and a cool necklace. And I've even grown a small beard, all in a kind of desperate attempt to look like the the sage and intelligent Robbie Collin, who's who's sat opposite me in a similar getup, but dropping it uh, in a lot cooler. It's well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. I would have I would have gone the other way around, but yeah, it's, it's kind of weird how our our wardrobes have synergized, yeah. synchronized for yeah. I think I've bumped day. into a few screenings and just thought, hmm, I'm pinching that, that, and that. <laughs> it's a good look, the film critic look. <laughs> so let's kick off with the uh, the top ten. Uh, this is the UK's box office top ten, and at number ten, it's the big. Sick. That's right, the latest confessional uh, romantic comedy from the Judd Apatow stable. I think the core of this film, which is a culture-class relationship between um, Kumel, who's played by the stand-up comedian Kumel Nanjiani, and Zoe Kazan, who plays um, the, the, the woman who in, in real life is Kumel's real-life partner, um, is really, really great. They have a fantastic chemistry together, um, a really natural, easy unrehearsed chemistry very much like us two in fact um, and it's that great thing that when romantic comedies get it right you are an active participant in the falling in love you're not just watching mm. it from a distance the film kind of splits down the middle because it's based on, um, on on Camille's real life experiences you have the culture clash romance at the start he comes from a very traditional strict Muslim background and she obviously doesn't and then in the kind of before the halfway point, she becomes sick, and then it moves into this disease of the weak territory where he has to get to know her mm-hmm. parents and and navigate around the, the, this idea that his girlfriend is is, is very very ill. Um, I think it's the kind of story that wouldn't have necessarily occurred to you unless you have lived it. But the very core of it, uh, I thought was very entertaining. 
out on the periphery where you have the stuff with friends and parents, I think it's it's less strong. But mm. the, the, the very heart of it, which is what matters, is, is great. I thought, I, I mean, you know, being someone who has dabbled in stand-up, someone from an ethnic minority background, someone with a mixed-race family, I thought this movie would just speak to me on so many levels. And I didn't laugh for almost 60 minutes, which I was absolutely furious about. I mean, I was livid about that from, from a comedy you know, uh, I really, really struggled with this movie in a way that I struggled with a lot of Apatow movies. And I was taken aback by um, how much I didn't go for it. And nothing struck me as true, which is ironic considering it's a true story. Right, but the backstage stuff at the comedy club didn't... No, it didn't work for me. I found the, stand- the elements of stand-up quite cringy and, and irritating and... Yeah, I, it it lost me quite early on and, and never got me back, which is a shame uh, because, you know, from what most people say, it's, I mean, it's been a positive kind of reaction on the whole, I would say. Um, there's, uh, there's one right here from Richard Brown. This is an email. Um, it says, uh, last weekend, my better half and I watched The Big Sick at the wonderful Watershed Cinema in Bristol. It was a sold out screening and judging by the regular chuckling, most, if not all, of the audience enjoyed the film. It is sweet, but not cloyingly so, with plenty of heart and scenes full of genuine emotional punch. There are also some of the best jokes I've seen in a comedy, never mind a rom-com, and the performance of Kamail Nanjiani, especially when opposite his co-star Zoe Kazan, is one to cherish. I'm delighted to see it sneak into the box office top ten, and I hope it gains the larger audience it deserves. That's from Richard Brown. And and honestly, most of the emails go that way. And I, I hate feeling like I, I'm being like awkward, but I can only... I can only express how. how yes, I felt right. Well, in look, that I felt when I came out of the film that I hadn't enjoyed it as much as other people because mm. I wasn't completely sold on the friends and the parents. Yeah, and all of the, the world around them. Things. I didn't. Right. Buy. Exactly. Uh, but that's really interesting that you didn't because obviously, so many of Apatow's films have this element of the comedy club. They they tend to happen on the fringes of show business. And mm. Funny People, which I think is his, his best film by by a very very long way. I agree with that. Has this great idea of this community who are in constant competition, but they're also helping each other along along the way. And so there's a real kind of clash of loyalties all the time, which I think is really spiky and funny. But in this film, it just didn't come across. I thought. Yeah, I mean, two words that I just hate coming to me when I'm watching a comedy is quirky and mawkish and I just those two words were just spinning around my head for for a couple of hours so I, I really struggled with it but like I say I'm I think I'm probably in the minority and I'm happy with that and number nine is one of my favorite films so far this year Baby Driver yep the Edgar Wright car chase rock ballet which is still doing really well I'm delighted that it is hanging on the top 10 as well as it's done I think it's just past 10 million pounds this week yes which is great um, and, you know, we've spoken a lot about this. Mark has spoken about this a lot on the, on the programme as well. I just think the, one of the things that's not quite been credited enough because the craft of the film is exceptional, but, mm. but what he does is he shoots um, Ansel Elgort in a way, and it's like with Channing Tatum or Greta Gerwig, he just makes him someone that you want to just look at doing yeah. anything. You know, yeah. if he's making a sandwich in the kitchen, it's done in the most stylish and entertaining way you can imagine. It's just, you know, his presence is completely key to the film. Aside from all this incredible car chase technique, uh, gunplay, music syncing up with everything, um, just the way that he makes Ansel Elgort, he sells him plausibly as a movie star, I thought was terrific. Yeah, that peanut butter sandwich moment is such a great example of how brilliantly that movie's made because it's ridiculously entertaining. Nobody should, there should never be a, a peanut butter make, sandwich making experience that is that entertaining. But it's, it sums up the movie. It's, it's old school entertainment. It's just it's never bored, really enjoyable. And um, 
yeah, I have to I have to put it up there as one of my most enjoyable experiences in a cinema. Yep, in 2017. Nope. Very, very that. same. Very same. Um, at number eight, enjoyable, maybe not the word. I heard your review last week, 47 metres down. Yes, uh, a shark attack thriller with Mandy Moore and Claire Holt, um, which confines two sisters to a cage, drops them 47 metres down into mm. shark-infested waters. And the result is grubby and murky and talky when it should be beautiful and crisp and streamlined. It just seems to me to completely misunderstand why these isolated horror thrillers, you know, or horror thrillers involving isolation, how they should work and how they work well. Yeah, it feels like they sort of just just didn't follow the rules almost, but not in a good way. Yes, exactly. Good way. Um, there's a there's a couple of uh, bits of correspondence this uh, on this from our listeners. Um, this one's from Peter. He says, "I saw this last week. It had a few minor thrills and a decent premise, but overall, it was a very basic paint by numbers killer shark thriller. Available in all bargain bins as soon as it arrives on DVD, Blu-ray." Um, that's from Peter Fivey. Sounds more like a maybe a Peter Tui. Uh, 47 metres down Harry Steele says uh, he saw an early preview of this uh, last year and found the sections when Mandy Moore left the safety of her shark cage terrifying it is a rare horror movie where the danger can literally come from any direction and every time she swam into the blue void I waited with bated breath for the sudden appearance of fins and teeth so obviously you know it worked for Harry and I guess sometimes with these kind of movies if if it taps into that thing that you're really scared of in, in real life that can sometimes be enough to yes. carry you past the plot holes and the right, the right. Poor there was that Ryan Reynolds film a while back called Buried, where he was in a coffin yes. underground, and the camera never left that box, and he had outside contact with a, I think it was a failing um, mobile phone, mm. and like two sources of light: the phone and uh, a cigarette lighter. And somehow, because you know that's a universal fear, that's got there to you go. Be, but that really got to me in a way that this just didn't. Um, going down the list of the UK box office top ten now, um, my kids in in twelve years have never shown any interest in this franchise, but it's still going strong. Cars three, it's going strongish. It's actually <laughs> I read in Charles Gant's box office column in the Guardian this week that it's on track to be Pixar's lowest grossing film in the UK. Now, the previous um, rec- I mean, it's not really a record, but the previous owner of that title was The Good Dinosaur. Um, this is really struggling to match The Good Dinosaur's fifteen point one million. I think right. it's on seven point four at the moment. I wonder if there's an element of franchise burnout with this or possibly, as we'll see with the Despicable Me franchise, which is going more than strong Mm. at the moment. It's just because Cars has kind of cropped up. I think the original was 2006, then 2011 for the sequel, which wasn't very good. And then now six years forward again, we've got the new one. Despicable Me has absolutely... You know, when they when they knew that film had found an audience, they pounded out the sequels yeah, one every two years, like clockwork. And they've obviously kept the momentum going in a way that Cars possibly hasn't. There's less confidence there, isn't there, in that franchise? It's almost as if they've put out the first one, didn't really work, so they waited for those kids to get older and realise that they didn't like it, and then wait for a whole bunch of new kids to be born and not realise that Cars One wasn't all that. Yes, so right, Cars Two. And, and the thing is, as well, is that this franchise, I think, has probably a large part of it keeping going has been the amount of merchandise yeah that sells. crazy like, yeah yeah um and at number six uh we have girls trip yes which i'm delighted to see has found an audience 1.5 million in its uh opening weekend means it's officially done well i previously comedies with uh majority non-white casts have really struggled to find an audience in the uk i wonder if the success not that they're comedies but the success of hidden figures and Moonlight, you know, two kind of big, heavy hitting, particularly Moonlight um, films during awards season with majority non-white casts, 
has changed public perceptions um, for the better. You know, this is basically The Hangover, but it feels more radical and subversive than The Hangover because the characters, you know, white male characters in that situation, drunken holiday, group holiday, uh, they have a permission to misbehave. You know, it's something mm. we've seen on screen a lot. It's something that we expect to an extent of... Kind of an entitlement. Exactly. That is, of course, not the case at all for African-American women. So the fact that they are doing it makes the film that much more exciting. It's also, you know, it's consistently funny and it is outrageous. It pushes boundaries of taste in ways that I did not expect but will not elaborate on. Right, um, okay, good, good. I, I'm actually really excited to see it because, you know, I mean, just for that that fact alone, it, it, it bugs me that there's this kind of unwritten, unspoken thing that, you know, you can't really have a big universal picture if it's got black heroes or especially if it's got black female heroes. And that just keeps getting torn down with every, every step we take, you know. Um, what was what was the movie uh, about space travel? Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. Right. You've got Black Panther on its way. Yep. You know, I think those days are done. People are ready. Whatever colour or background or, or gender they are, they're ready for different types of heroes. And uh, I'm really looking forward to Girls Trip uh, to seeing it, but also to hopefully it being a, a success purely for that. Yep. But let's hope it's, it's it's a great film as well. You liked it. Yeah, uh, very I'm much looking so. forward to it. Tom Beasley saw it and he says, uh, Girls Trip is a film that doesn't do so much um, passing the six laugh test as tear it to pieces and leave it giggling on the floor. All four main cast characters are brilliant in their roles with Tiffany Haddish, an outrageous delight, and Jada Pinkett Smith doing a great job of transitioning from a motherly wallflower to a confident and adventurous woman. Some of the gross-out set pieces go on a little too long and the plot is as formulaic as they come, but there's a great message of female empowerment and strength of friendship bonds. Um, James Rodriguez also says... uh, as with Lost's Bad Moms, a love letter to mothers everywhere, told in the most humorous of ways, Girls Trip is a pleasant surprise about finding one's inner strength and being able to accomplish whatever possible when you have the full support of those you love. While it may run for a little too long, it's never a chore spending time with this charming cast who portray lovable characters they're easy to root for. A special mention is deserved for Tiffany Haddish, who's easily the breakout star and deserves to see her career reach successful heights of Melissa McCarthy. Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, right. She's very much, I keep on going on about the hangover in relation to this, but she's very much the Zach Galifianakis of this quartet. Oh, right. Okay. Obsessed with her, keen to find out everything she's going to do and what she's going to do next. Excellent. All right. um, At number five, uh, plenty has been said about this Spider-Man Homecoming. Yes, we've covered this. I'm not as so much of a fan as everyone else, but, you know, we've we've been over that before. There'll be more, I'm sure. Uh, More Spider-Mans forever. Uh, Number four, uh, War of of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, Wooft Pota, which takes performance capture out of the other side of the uncanny valley you know i think there's an extent we might talk about this in relation to one of this week's films Mm. but the effects in this film are so good and so convincing that it's almost makes you more able to pick out the tiny little flaws that you wouldn't have necessarily noticed in other performance capture beforehand it's really setting the standard i can't wait to see it i've just i saw the other two uh, uh, as a little warm-up on television recently so I'm going to see that soon. Um, number three is Despicable Me 3. Yeah, which we've, we've kind of covered when we were talking about Cars 3. This franchise just keeps going and going and going. It's now past 35.8 million in mm-hmm. the UK in five weeks, which is extraordinary. Yeah, big fans in my house. Number two, another big kids film, which is doing amazingly, Captain Underpants. Tra-la-la. <laughs> now, I wish, I mean, it's great that it's at number two in the box office chart it took a shade under 2.5 million pounds which is not much more than despicable me 3 we should also bear in mind that's from a seven day opening weekend because it opened right, on, so on the Monday. advantage without the extra five days of previews i don't think it would have passed despicable me 3 at all and it's a shame because i mean my, my hope is that the film is so 
obviously funny that it will become a big word of mouth hit. Mm. And I mean, it's something that I keep on telling people to see, whether you have kids or not, my goodness, go and see this. All of the jokes, you know, kids and adults laugh at these jokes for precisely the same reasons at exactly the same time. And it's a kind of a great communal cinema going experience. That's nice because I, I find it quite tiresome when it's like, here's the adult joke. <laughs> You'll get this because you saw Goodfellas. Do you mm. know what I mean? I, I don't really go for right. that. Um, uh, my, my kids went to see it without me. Um, <laughs> I was working, but they're still raving about it. And um, they have good taste. I, have, I You know, I've, I've raised them right. I've raised them right. Good. We have, do, they, do they want to see the Emoji movie? They actually saw the trailer when we were going to see uh, Despicable Me 3. And um, the 12-year-old leaned over and nudged me and said, don't take me to that. <laughs> and the Interesting. And the 8-year-old said, that looks stupid. Interesting. So, okay. That was a very proud moment as a father. You know, just that little... I didn't want to break the code or anything within the cinema, but it's just you know a warmth. I thought a warmth run throughout my uh, <laughs> my my being. Um, at number one, uh, absolutely blowing the box office away is Dunkirk. Yeah, and the interesting thing about this, not just that it's top of the box office top ten for the second week running, but how little the takings have declined since last week. It's gone down eighteen percent. Normally, for a summer blockbuster release. Uh, a studio was lucky if the decline from week one to week two is 40%. You know, 40 to 60 is kind of normal for a very hyped, uh, you know, massive, you must see it as soon as this comes out kind of film. And I wonder if that's partly because Dunkirk is cutting across audiences in a way that blockbusters don't, you know, anecdotally I've heard there's a lot of different ages going to see this film. It's working as a family film. It's working as a film for older people um, as well who are, who are going on their own. Um, you know, and also the fact that it's one hour 45 minutes long means cinemas are able to fit in more screenings per day. So that's all going to be uh, helpful. But yeah, I mean, you know, the fact it's caught on with audiences, as it has done with critics, is great. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not big on war movies in, in general. Um, but, you know, I have a, I have a very close, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of a family thing, I guess. My, my, my dad fought in the Second World War. That's, that's how old my, my dad was when I was born. Um, and he was on the beaches in Normandy and... Uh, these these huge profound battles they're just often they're just not represented right on screen for me i'd rather watch a documentary but i went to see dunkirk yesterday and i think one of the 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 smartest things about it is the way it it picks up on the little stories and then the individual stories which somehow makes it more manageable because it's such a beast do you know what i mean any war is is such a beast to try and represent on screen but yeah there was something beautiful about it and i i thought it would be more harrowing than it was. I think it's good that it's got that 12A rating because I think every age needs to see this. Well, maybe not every age. I think, you know, primary school could maybe <laughs> yep. put that off for yep. a couple okay. of years. But um, yeah, there's something special about that movie. It, it, it really moved me. Um, and uh, unbelievably, I mean, when was it reviewed on this show? Three weeks ago? The correspondence is still stacking up. Um, Chris Pearson on the, uh, on the email says, uh, Dear Substitute Teachers, I'd like to report on a new craze sweeping the nation. After enjoying Dunkirk to the max on Saturday, or indeed to the IMAX, I've been really surprised at how much people around me didn't enjoy it. To each their own, of course, but one phrase I've seen popping up more than anything is the critics overhype this movie. A similar thing happened with La La Land earlier this year. We all remember the backlash against the backlash against the backlash. I do remember that. I don't even know where we stand with that. Either. I, uh, not, I, just, I just loved the film. La La Land, Dunkirk. I think you've got to stick to how you felt in that moment and not get swayed. Um, but do you think, uh, sorry, this is back to uh, Chris's email. He says, do you think there is an issue of critically well-received blockbusters becoming overhyped before release? An issue which more 
popcorn flips flicks have a protection against due to their more lukewarm critical responses? Would love to know what you think, Chris and Clapham. That's an interesting question, isn't it? It is. And I think La La Land was a very particular case because it surfaced at the Venice Film Festival in late August of 2016 and then kept popping up at film festivals all the way through to its um, UK release, which was early January. So you kind of had maybe five months of people telling you this film that you can't see yet is wonderful. And I was, you know, I was at Venice in the very first Mm. screening of it and kind of came out just staggering, fully energised and delighted by what I'd seen. And, you know, went off to to hammer out this kind of five-star rave of the thing. And then, of course, you know, this sort of story takes hold that, yes, this film is going to change your life when you see it, blah, 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 blah. And it just mounts and mounts and mounts. And then when it arrives, there's almost no way that it can possibly stand up to that. I'm not sure if Dunkirk's the same, though, because the reviews for that dropped, uh, I think, five days or something before release. I mean, there wasn't a big, there was no big build up. Yeah, and look, expectations is a huge thing. It's a huge, huge thing. And, um, you know, if 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 you go in low... You're you're bettering your chances, I guess. I prefer just you know try and avoid as 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 much as you can and just go in there with a sort of an open mind. But for for me, it was a special film, and I I would just like to give a quick shout out to you. You told me the actor's name, and I've forgotten it already. The other RAF pilot, Jack Loudon. Jack Loudon. Can we give a shout out to his eyebrows as well as Tom's? Tom's are amazing. There's no doubt about it. But you know, I've just heard and read a lot about Tom's eyebrows. Let's just give a shout out to the Loudon. Browse because they they were working overtime too, guys. The Brodens. I'm sure some of you will be happy to know I've just received my first SmackDown uh, on eight five eight five zero five eight. Keep keep them uh, coming, folks. <laughs> um, it's from Charlotte uh, with a, a differing opinion to mine on the um, the Cars franchise. She says, "I just wanted to give a quick comment on the Cars movie discussion uh, going on. Um, just anecdotally, our five year old absolutely loves all the Cars movies. He's beside himself with happiness that the new Cars film is out, and it's reignited his obsession with the whole franchise. My husband and I enjoy watching that with him more than any of the other recent Pixar films. Disagree that it's not very good. It's funny, heartwarming, witty in places. Definitely less annoying." than something like Despicable Me. Thanks, Charlotte. Yeah, look, I, I respect that. I, I should say, I think Cars 3 is actually a really good film. I think really? it's, it's the sequel that Cars 1 okay. is. It really nicely counterbalances and goes with the original film. Um, just for some reason, it's not striking a chord. It could purely be that there's too much else out there. Um, you know, too many. Yeah, uh, I mean, all it's, the alternatives, it's summer, like, isn't it? So like Despicable got... Me and, and, and like um, uh, Captain Underpants, yeah. of course. Um, and apparently Dunkirk as well. Yeah, for some kids, yeah. Um, yeah, no, Charlotte, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I genuinely do. Um, as a parent, I guess the only sort of um, reverse smackdown I can give is that you're going to have to spend a lot more money on related toys than I am over the next few years. Um, right, listen, um, there's another movie out uh, this week called Mordy. Um, I went to see it and I met with uh, one of its stars, Ethan Hawke. He, he stars alongside the... Uh, the amazing Sally Hawkins. Um, and we're going to find out what Robbie makes of this film uh, very shortly. But first up, um, feast your ears on my conversation with Ethan after this clip. I told you you could paint fairies on the wall, huh? They're not fairies. They're birds. Well, who told you you could do that, huh? Well, you did. What? You said, you said, place look all right. I think it looks all right. No painting in this corner. Huh? Don't want paint on my boots, no paint on my gear. Rest is fine. No. Birds or fairies, I don't mind. Mm. Mm. I don't do that. 
that was a clip from the movie Mordy, and uh, with me here, I'm very proud to say, is one of the stars of the film, Ethan Hawke. Ethan, how you doing? Yeah, doing really well. Excellent. All right. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, for the lucky listeners of ours who are yet to see this movie, can you just set up exactly who Mordy is and where? Your All right, yeah. Maud Lewis uh, was a Canadian folk artist um, of very small note during her lifetime, but in the years since she passed, has been her celebrity has been growing. And what she was a uh, she suffered from juvenile arthritis, and she was uh, pretty mistreated by her family. Uh, she was a strange young woman, and a kind of what they called a broken you know, her spine and her hands and her feet um, and her attitude were unique. And uh, she really couldn't stand her family and went away. To, there was a fisherman who lived alone on this hill and he was, something was wrong with him too. <laughs> and uh, she got a job as his maid, and which is a pretty comic idea because his house that he lived in was smaller than this mm. studio that we're in right now. Um, I think it was 14 by 14, just a little shack he lived in. But he would go on these long fishing trips and he needed somebody to clean it up. And so he got this live-in maid, you know, <laughs> that he could... Basically, he was pretty, from all reports, um, true to the period of a rural gentleman of that time, was a pretty misogynistic dude, mm. you know. And the story of the movie is their love affair mm. and how the power of this woman, her, her art is incredibly simple um, and incredibly beautiful. And by simple, what I mean is you, some of her paintings are as cliche as like three kittens or something, but yet the way that she paints these kittens, something about it is absolutely stunning. And she's somebody who kind of uh, like a, Oh, what's the word when you turn, um, metal into gold? Um, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, uh, she, you know, an alchemist. Alchemist, thank you. And she turns <laughs> pain into she, beauty. You yeah. know, she changes hearts. And it's this, I was very moved by the story. And, um, when I read it and Sally Hawkins is uh, just a tremendous young actress. And I, I thought that the intersection of her and this part could be special. Unbelievable. I mean, really is. And, uh, you, you say you were moved by the story. I mean, I, I, I was incredibly, and I, I knew very little. Did, did you know much about Maud Lewis before? Had you heard of her? I had heard of her. I have a place in Nova Scotia. Believe it or not, it's weird. At one point in my life, about 15 years ago or so, I was trying to... It, well, whatever. It doesn't matter how depressed I was. But <laughs> I, I, I'd, I'd read somewhere that uh, yeah. you you had a place in Nova Scotia. I, I, didn't, I wasn't sure if I I dreamt it because I read it a long time ago. No, I did. Um, I, I got a like a little cabin up there, and I go up there in the summer with my kids and stuff. And I've kind of fallen in love with it. And I heard about this artist who her house is in a museum. Yeah. That sticks in your brain yeah. when you hear that. But that's all I knew. Right, right. And that is Maud Lewis's masterpiece. Mm. Is the, the, house the house she itself. lived in. And the the movie kind of documents them i mean most of the movies just sally and you know, i you know living in this tiny space but the, <laughs> which, which you're almost too big for yeah it's times, a tiny space made me laugh but she painted the whole thing up backwards and forwards Incredible. and when you see it in a museum the 
local people when she passed um, or when he passed because he died uh, later um, they just didn't want to see it rot and they just mm. moved the whole house to museum mm. and it's you know the stairs have grass growing through it I mean she painted this squirrels and fairies yep. and flowers mm-hmm. and um, deer and oxen it's, it's something about the way she brings color to an otherwise kind of bleak landscape yeah. Yeah. you know and it's the same within the house itself the the, the sort of grayness and the bleakness and the, the 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 dirtiness of the house and then also to your character everett as well bringing some color and like you say he begins as this misogynist in fact when i look back at your career and some of the challenges that you've had as an actor and as a director and a writer I, I, it makes me think could there be a tougher challenge than being mean to sally hawkins <laughs> yeah it's a tough road to I mean, huh? yeah it's it's um because the first sort of half hour of the he's movie he's pretty tough with her yeah um one of the things that i liked most about the movie is that you often see relationships in theater or dramatized and they're kind of one thing and anybody's been in a, a living relationship is it's usually a lot of things at once Mm. and the idea that somebody could behave badly and also be worthy of love you know is an idea that movies don't love bad people get you know we want bad things to happen you know somebody lies they're a bad person somebody does something abusive it's never that black and white and in life it's so much more complex than that and what i loved about this Maud and everett's love affair is that the power dynamic is constantly shifting and it's rare to see a true account of a heart that changed, mm. you know, and it's a very, mm. it's, it's beautiful to watch her impact. You know, there's an old like shaker expression. It's lots of different expressions, but leave every room cleaner than you found it, you know, right. and, and, and Maud had this power of, even if it's this tiny little shack in a snow covered <laughs> hill, that's musty and smelly. By the time she leaves it, mm-hmm. it's covered in flowers and, uh, and, that, and life. That's that's why it feels it feels wrong to call it a biopic, even though it is by a biographical picture. Yeah. It feels Primarily more like relationship. yeah, it feels yeah, more like a love yeah. story. I mean, yeah. there's a moment, there's a moment where, without throwing any spoilers in there, you're completing <laughs> what is uh, quite a contentious piece of DIY. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, uh-huh. <laughs> and there's a look as you're doing it. Um, which kind of says so many things, but it, in a, in a moment it feels like it says you win again. You win again. Yeah, yeah. And me and my wife were watching it, and yeah. we were just in hysterics because it, <laughs> it said so much about the politics of a marriage in one look. And that for me was the film you, all you know, over. And you know? it, it's funny because it was really my wife is the one. I, I just wasn't reading the script, and my wife really goes passionate about this movie. Right. She just she really wanted me to do this movie and. Uh, she wanted to believe in a world where people would make a movie like this and people would go see a movie mm. like this. I, because because of exactly what you're saying about y- you and your wife watching it, it's somehow to get to see and smell a relationship and all of its weirdness you know real relationships are just weird human sexuality is weird Mm -hmm. people are weird the way we love each other is weird and it's never one thing all the time and that's what i think my wife really liked about it sometimes i play this role and then it shifts and now i want to play this part and you better let me um yeah and then the, the 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 frustration of being in love is is right there you know yeah. you, you can't help 
but go along with things. You you can't help but be the loser one day and the winner the next. And I think like that's why I say that's why I say it <laughs> elevates. It's elevated above the nature of just a biopic. Yeah, oh, I know? hope so. I hope so. Biopics largely aren't interesting to me, and um, it's Maude Lewis's art is interesting, mm-hmm. and I think that. Ashling Walsh is this Irish director, and I think that she did a she did a great job of creating. She created an environment where all she cared about was the acting. Mm. It was like she got this house built in the middle of a hill. We went out into the middle of nowhere. It was freezing cold, <laughs> and we just did these scenes all day. And what's funny about it is, a lot of times you go to a film set, and all they care about is the cinematography. Or you go to a film set and there's some writer-director and all he cares about is the word right, that you say right. or whatever. There's no and, flexibility. Yeah, and, and Ashling and Sally had, had worked together before for, and, uh, and Ashling understood there's a slight bit of magic to Sally, you know, <laughs> and she doesn't think like most actors and uh, she doesn't operate on one level and it's really fun to be around and, and Ashling really created space for our imagination which is kind of what nobody people think that being a good actor's director is like telling people what to do or I don't know what they think it is but most people don't with somebody like Sally particularly what you really want to do is create a world and let her inhabit it and yeah. let her imagination run free and then chase after it right. which is what I did and uh it was a little bit like a dream. You know, what I love about making movies is you're away on location. So it's this, I don't, it's, it's, a, it's a dream I, I life. Hate you. You, I you know, hate you. and I, I, I see the movie now and it's, it's almost like echoes of this dream I had a year and a half ago. When, <laughs> it almost feels like a life I had lived. It's fascinating that you say, you know, that idea of um, letting the imagination run free and chasing after it. Because as I, as I was watching, I was thinking about the script, uh, you know, um, Sherry White White script. There's so many amazing, beautiful lines, but there's also a lot of grunting yeah. by both of you. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. sort of grunts and guttural noises, which also say a lot. And I'm, th- I was thinking, well, that can't be scripted. So it was really, you know, what Sally and I would do. We would sit there and work on these things, and basically decided that if we could cut a line, we would. Right. That do we really do? I have to say that, or could, is it possible? Like, could I communicate that? Because we just didn't buy that these people chatted all the time. Mm. <laughs> you know, they weren't sitting there talking about the baseball <laughs> game or how good you know Rihanna is or something like that. You know, they're they're rural people. Um, uh, I mean, this is a guy who thought people from Halifax were pretentious. Okay, <laughs> this is a guy. I saw this little clip of him in an interview. I was. This was the whole key to the character to me. I just. I. I was fascinated by this. This. This BBC company is actually. Mm. These guys are interviewing mm-hmm. Maude Lewis because somebody was interested in naive mm-hmm. art. You know, was interviewing her, and it, towards the end of the interview, Everett is just standing behind her in the darkness, and they said, "You know, what do you do?" You know, and he says, "I cook sometimes." You know, and they said, <laughs> "Well, what's your favorite meal?" And he says, my favorite meal? Bread. <laughs> thought, right, this is an interesting person. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a moment early on. I think it's possibly the first moment you feel some tenderness between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, I think it, it's, it's when Sally says the line about um, difference. You know, every, a lot of people feel uncomfortable or, or hate people that are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And you see this little spark in Everett's eyes mm. 
and you know that this is going to be an intriguing journey and that's exactly what it turns out to be i think it's uh it's an incredible piece of work and um and a fantastic job by by both of you um it's you, so, you know, I'm sorry. I know you're going to say something more interesting than what I'm about to say. But <laughs> no, no, go for it. you know, one of the things that I'm happy about about it, which is nothing to do really with the movie, but with audiences, which is that you are, we're constantly made to think that all anybody cares about is things blowing up, mm. and 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 that that's the only story mm. that people want to be told. Mm. And I've been fascinated watching, you know, I really kind of thought nothing would happen with this movie. And it's been amazing to watch it play at festivals, and watch it get a release, and watch get to be here, and you're asking me these incredibly interesting questions about it. I'm thinking about the journey of this movie, and how pleased I am that something so delicate could find its way exactly. through the zeitgeist. And that's why know? it shouldn't be sold and packaged as, you know, a biopic about an artist. Yeah, End right. of story. It's a cinematic love story. And it really is cinematic because you've got, I mean, it's Newfoundland, right? Shot as Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. But it's still a spectacular watch. Yeah. Um, what do we see you in next? Let's see. I don't know. Um, what did I do next? Um, oh, I have um, this movie I love called First Reformed. Um, it's directed and written by Paul Schrader, who okay. wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And Amazing. Everything. It's it, probably the best script I've ever... It's definitely one of the top three scripts I've ever worked on. Now, whether that means the movie's going to be good, I don't know. But I do know <laughs> that it, the subject matter... I play a priest who's having a major spiritual crisis brought on by the church's response to climate change and why okay. they're not a leader. And, and he starts to wonder why he's not doing more. And it takes him down a very interesting road. All right. Sounds exciting i'm excited and you know what it's been an absolute pleasure to me i could do another half an hour and it had been telling us to wrap up for some time okay so okay, i appreciate sorry, your sorry, time sorry, sorry. no yeah. no it's awesome man well, it's, it's great to I meet you much, and no, no i don't mind that i'm exactly right. the same so we're probably a bad fit for radio right. <laughs> <laughs> take it easy yeah appreciate it robbie you'll be interested to know that ethan is another gentleman we can add into our sort of world of um, loosely unbuttoned shirts, uh, wide neck t-shirts, and, and cool necklaces. <laughs> it's good to, know. Uh, good to know. Yeah, he sort of strode in. He was kind, kind of like yeah, like a loose cowboy. He was, he was a very cool guy. Um, uh, I was, I was largely impressed by him, but I was also really surprised and impressed by the movie. Um, I don't. It's not the type of movie I would have gone to seen just on my own accord, which was maybe a big part of it. So I'm praying you're not going to uh, rip it to shreds. But if you do, I will defend it. Okay, Manfully. well, look, armour up. Um, for me, it's really interesting that throughout that interview, Ethan Hawke was saying this isn't really a biopic, it's a love story. It's forget about the fact that this is about an artist, mm -hmm. it's about this relationship with these two people. That's exactly what I felt while watching it. But for me, the art became this sort of elephant in the room that, you know, why aren't you addressing this? I actually didn't think I knew who Maud Lewis was before going in to see this. And it was when that picture of the three kittens oh, beside the tulips, that's an image that I really remember. There was another one, which I don't think appears in the film, but of a, a horse and carriage galloping down an old-timey street. Um, it was, again, I looked up and thought, oh, that's who she is. So she has this incredibly distinctive visual style that you probably know, even if you don't know who she is. And the fact that the film just boxes this up and uses it as set dressing but nothing more I found really really exasperating there's, there's a film out in a couple of weeks called Final Portrait directed by Stanley Tucci which is about the artist uh, Alberto Giacometti 
and it's set over 15 days, I think, um, during the making of one painting in one room. And you come out of that film and think, do you know what? Even though that is a tiny, tiny sliver of this guy's life, I get him. I now can go to a Giacometti exhibition and completely decode that. And when a, when a film that involves a real-life artist like Maudie, like Maud, Maud Lewis, it doesn't grapple with that. I can't help but come away, even if it's not the subject of the film, I can't help but come away feeling slightly shortchanged. I think, you know, this film is set over 30 years, so a very, very large portion of her life. And it requires two very difficult, technically difficult performances from both Sally Hawkins uh, and Ethan Hawke, because of course they have to age, they have this incredibly difficult relationship. Um, and, and both of them do a really good job of... Uh, making these two characters pleasant to spend time with without sort of sanding off, getting rid of their complications. You know, you know that they're both difficult people to live with, particularly Everett, who I think is significantly more horrible in real life than he is in the film. Yeah, I imagine. Um, and also in terms of the, the physical side of it with the arthritis and stuff, Sally Hawkins does a tremendous job. She manages to reconcile it with a sparkle that I recognised from her work in Happy Go Lucky, the Mike Lee film a, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, barely, I think, a week of my life goes past when I don't think about her driving lesson with Eddie Marson in that film. I mean, it's just <laughs> something that replays and replays and replays in my head. Yeah. So you have at the core of it this quite interesting relationship, but then afterwards you kind of think, okay, so so we know that they had a difficult relationship and we know that she existed, but kind of so what? The way it matches the art to that, it kind of suggests that because he is nasty to her, she seeks solace in painting. There's this scene where he slaps her across the face and then she goes inside, pulls out a pot of paint. And it is that simple. You know, she has a terrible life. She goes in, she makes it more colourful with the art. To me, that feels like a very, very simplistic way of explaining it. If you think about a film, another Mike Lee film, uh, Mr. Turner, mm-hmm. where you get this sense of the actual flow of creative force through this guy's life. Um, Peter Watkins, Edvard Munch as well, one of the absolute all-time great artist biopics. Um to me, for it to have not gone there feels like this massive missed opportunity. And, you know, uh, that's why there are so few great art biopics, because it's a very difficult thing to do. And the fact that this film doesn't do it, fine, but I was left wishing it had done. Well, you're not saved by the bell. Because <laughs> we'll I'm going to come back on the other side of the news and defend this movie, if it's the last thing I do. Still to come, we've got another hour of film conversation, including these reviews. Uh, Valerian, The Emoji Movie, England is Mine, Williams and The Ghoul. You're listening to a BBC Five Live podcast. Como de Mayo's film review. If you like this, you might also like this. Flintoff, Savage and the Ping Pong Guy. Is everybody's hunger in sport different? I was hungry. I wanted to be the best. For me, you win or that's it. To find out more about our range of podcasts, click, tap or swipe. bbc.co.uk slash Five Live. Welcome back. Uh, full full disclosure here, I'm not Simon Mayo, he's not Mark Kermode. They're off on their annual cruise, so it's Robbie Collin and Ben Bailey-Smith here instead. Now, we should get into some more reviews, but as I said before the, 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 the news, I, I want to stick to my guns here. I want to come out swinging on behalf of Mordy, and, and not, not just because I was a whisk away from a pint with Ethan Hawke, right? <laughs> That's not the reason. I genuinely, I really love that movie. It took me by surprise. And I just, there's, you made a lot of salient points, as you always do. It's just that, that one about simplicity, I just I felt it was a little unfair to compare it with something like Turner because, you know, Maud Lewis, the artist Maud Lewis, simplicity was everything with her work, you know? I mean, for those who don't know her, imagine like a kind of, almost like a, a sort of Kath Kidston by numbers sort of thing. It's that sort of garishly colourful, but it's just really sweet. And I don't think she initially saw herself as an artist. So, 
you know, painting is, is something that she developed. And, um, you know, you talk about that simplicity of like, oh, she's been slapped, so now she's going to pick up a paint pot. You know, it was her job to paint that that shack, you know, and, and, and she began with, you know, basic colouring. And then these little creatures uh, started appearing and... Um, you know, it's no, it was definitely no, no turner. It didn't have that kind of depth. But there's a part of me that thought it's not supposed to. It, it, you know, in that same way that I watched Dunkirk, and I think, well, this isn't the whole story. My dad had told me that. I, what Dunkirk did for me was it made me get right online. It made me pull out some books, and I read around the subject. The same after Mordi, I was reading up on her and checking out all the artwork that I had no idea existed. And what I what I liked about that movie the most was it, it it just pushed the exposition aside and it just it's it created this love story which as you've pointed out was probably a lot harsher in real life but I was totally wrapped up in that love story and it just made me want to on my own time find out more about the art I didn't need to see a Turner esque kind of oh my god this is how she painted that tiny kitten I did it, it was yeah that I mean kind of, of, vibe. of course she's not sort of spitting <laughs> at the canvas and, and flying around all over the place but I would have really liked some sense of why this art matters to people other right. than her you know I mean it obviously does the stuff was selling not during her lifetime tragically but it's now, now selling was it Nixon that had uh, one of her yeah that's right the right. film sort of streamlines the historical record slightly to to make it more of a a rise and fall and and her decline feel more terminal. It was actually the Nixon White House ordered uh, two paintings in, I think, 69. Uh, The film moves that event forward by at least 10 years so that she's in a more jocular spirit to sort of joke about, oh, well, they love to pay for them like everyone else. Hmm. Um, So so it it, it does kind of stay, I mean, you know, that kind of shuffling doesn't worry me at all. I think if you're writing a script, you can do what you like, you know, move things around as, as you please. There is a really good moment where the shopkeeper says to Ethan Hawke's character, Everett, the husband, um... These paintings are something along the lines of these paintings are terrible. My eleven-year-old yeah. could do this, and he says, "Yeah, but he's not." And that sort of starts to get to the heart of why she's interesting because it is a simplistic style, but it's one that you know other people aren't doing for whatever reason. And that's kind of there's so many questions about that character that the film ignores, and I don't know whether it was ignoring them tactically or just because, like I say, it's very very difficult to answer these questions well on film, mm. and that's why there are so few great artist biopics around yeah okay well i mean you know fair enough i i I would urge people to give this movie a bash because it's just not the kind of thing that you just you run out and see at the the cinema necessarily because you may think it's it's uncinematic or non-cinematic but actually the the landscape and and for me the love story carry it through and, and two incredible performances that's just the way i feel but you know what else i feel robbie i feel that this is perhaps merely an hors d'oeuvre <laughs> this is merely an undercard of uh, of a heavyweight bout between you and i that may come later why don't you tell the uh, folks uh, listening in right now what we got to look forward to in the next yes hour. we're talking about valerian england is mine williams the ghoul and the emoji movie mm-hmm. so uh plenty to discuss plenty to chew and plenty to agree or disagree on um and uh, case in point um the director luke besson besson Luc Besson. 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 Was on the show last week uh, talking to Edith. Uh, it was a great interview. I I, I was tuned in. Um, and it's time to find out what Robbie thinks of his brand new film, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. The City of Umpty Thrumpty Eleventy Stupid Planets, as we should really call it in Mark's <laughs> absence. Should. We because, should. you know, that's Out of something you can pick up later. Um, look, you know, Luc, Luc Besson is the director of uh, Nikita, Leon, Lucy, and crucially, when it comes to Valerian, the fifth element. Now, we have spoken about fifth ele- ele- the fifth element before 
at some length. Yes. This 1997 sci-fi masterpiece, I think, that was kind of bright and extravagant and preposterous when it came out, completely teeming with detail, in some ways a really corny throwback. And in other ways, scalp-pricklingly progressive. Mashing those two sort of things together, uh, this th- that original film was inspired by a French comic strip called Valerian et Laureline by uh, Pierre Cristin and uh, Jean-Claude Mézières. Now, fast forward 20 years from The Fifth Element and Besson has made an official Valerian film uh, with Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne as these two spatio-temporal agents as part of a galactic peacekeeping force. They are summoned to the titular city of Umpty Thrumpty, Eleventy Stupid Planets, uh, which is Alpha, this sort of free-floating metropolis in space that has been compiled over 400 years by various alien visitors attaching themselves to this Earth space station. There's a big conspiracy afoot on there that involves a strange radiation leak and a fluorescent hedgehog, which Valerian and Laureline are called to attend to in this kind of quite testy chemistry way they have. And here's a clip of them being testy and chemistry ee. Leaving exospace. Three, two, one, exit. Whoa, 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 easy, easy. We're late. Yeah, well, better late than dead. You want to drive? Whoa, put, put your hand back on the joystick. Laureline, put your hands back on the joystick. Laureline, will you please put your hand back on the joystick? Will you stop complaining about my driving? Yes, I'm sorry. You're a great driver. You're the best driver in the entire universe. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there we are. Now, what I would say is, is can be very sort of fatuous and reductive to say, if you like film A, then you'll like film yeah, B. Yeah, sure. However, in this it's case... handy, though, I think, for people. When in, in this case, around. it's particularly handy. If you like The Fifth Element, not one of these people that has come to it, you know, since the, since the original said, oh, yes, well, of course, I knew all along it was a wonderful film. I just didn't <laughs> say it at the time. If you were actually on board with that first wave of Fifth Element love, I think and hope because this, this is how it worked for me, that you will also enjoy Valerian. It too is bright, extravagant, preposterous, teeming with detail. In fact, I would probably upgrade teeming to throbbing. The amount of stuff that is going on on screen all the time in this film is just, it's, it's like nothing else. I mean, it's like, what's interesting about it is Besson has kind of gone to the Star Wars prequels aesthetic, which, I you know, those are films I really hesitate to bring up because I think we pretty much all generally agreed those films did not work. But he's gone to that sort of CG, just jacuzzi of imagery that you sink into. everywhere. Exactly. Foreground, background, everywhere. But he makes it work in this. Uh, You know, the, the, the story is basically a means of stringing together set pieces as it was in The Fifth Element. You know, you can have a go at the, the film story if you like. You can possibly also have a go at the the, the casting. You know, Dane DeHaan and Cara Delevingne um, are not sort of weighty dramatic presences in this movie, but for me, they are exactly what this story requires. They are young and they are attractive and they throw themselves into this and they have that kind of spiky chemistry. A word that I've noticed coming up a lot in reviews for this, or term rather, when people talk about the dialogue between the two, which we heard there, is Google Translate. You know, this is something I kind of shut myself off from Valerian reviews. Apart from, I must say, I did sneak a look at the Rotten Tomatoes Tomatometer, which didn't really work out particularly encouragingly before I went to see it. Um, But then went back to read them after I'd I'd kind of written down my own thoughts. And this idea that the, the dialogue has this Google Translate, it doesn't quite feel natural in English. It probably didn't quite feel natural in French either. But to me, that kind of slightly rickety feel 
really feeds into the the, the retro uh, the, the overall kind of retro aesthetic that he's going for. It doesn't feel like a film that needs to be verbose and clever and kind of riffing incredibly intelligently on on, on things, you know. And there are lovely, lovely moments that you know you wouldn't write if you're writing in English in your first as you, in English as your first language. I think where there's one bit where Valerian goes catapulting out of the wrong airlock. And Laureline apologises for misreading the map. And then he says something like, oh, don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. Now I'll just course correct. And it's such a kind of a weirdly prescriptive piece of writing. But somehow, because it's strange and because it kind of quite doesn't chime with everything else that's going on, uh, it, it works. You know, Besson's sense of humour that comes up in those moments totally carries over to the action choreography as well. You have this sequence at the start where um, Valerian is running through this sort of Moss Eisley spaceport-style place called Big Market, it's a, a market that exists on two tiers of reality. And he switches between these tiers and it is, it's, it's incredibly well staged. And the complexity of it just, you know, in the moment, you're just being bowled over by all this incredibly witty choreography. But it's, it's, it's choreographed in a way that is funny as well as beautiful. And similarly on Alpha, where you have so many different environments, these characters are barreling through this and a tremendous chase scene where he just kind of hurtles through, you know, he's running, he's jumping, he's falling, he's kind of going underwater like a torpedo at one moment. And it's just like pow, 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 Besson just wants to show you all of this incredible kind of mad, ugly, beautiful spectacle all the time. Mm -hmm. And if he hadn't thrown everything at this film, it wouldn't have worked. It needs to feel like an overload, but it does. And it's almost so overloaded that it becomes soothing when you're watching it. Well, to put it mildly, mildly there are differing opinions. We're talking about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, a new Luc Besson film, um, which uh, it was hard, it's hard to avoid this a Luc Besson film, isn't it? It's one of those... Luc Besson's is 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 what I call a, a an apostrophe movie, yes, you know, right. where where the director needs to make you know it's 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 his or her uh, project. We've got uh, a ton of correspondence on Valerian. It's, uh, I'm, I'm I'm kind of anticipating this will be all over the place. It's really is. It's 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 here. I think. It, I mean, I'll give you my opinion in a minute. I mean, it's it couldn't be more different from yours. But that that kind of reflects the correspondence. Um, let's let's start with this one. This is from Mark Smales. Uh, on the email, he says, Blimey, what a dreadfully overindulgent, nonsensical, poorly cast, silly waste of some nice ideas and apparently $180 million. Someone should have tried to rein in the lovely Luc Besson, but it appears that everyone just said, yeah, that'll work. Here's a tip if you're of an age, save the £12, go to the pub and talk your own nonsense. <laughs> Look into my eyes, you don't need to see Valerian. I'm uh, pretty harsh. Um, Tom Sterling, uh, on, also on the email, says Valerian is an astonishingly beautiful, imaginative film. Sure, the plot is all over the place. The script's a bit ropey and there's not much chemistry between the lead actors. However, Luc Besson's vision, creativity and energy shine through. And if you look for it, there's a classic film in there. Sadly, there were only eight people in the opening night screening at my local world of cine. And ultimately, I don't think this film will find its audience. But it certainly found me. Um, sure, surely it's 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 gonna get around enough to to find an audience i mean people, i don't know the fifth element took a while yeah, to, to settle did, down it? as well that's know? a good point and um you know if you like the fifth element you'll like this and i still struggle with the fifth <laughs> element uh massively i don't like the look of his sci-fi films i think that's the first thing it reminds me of those horrific um paintings you can get in those kind of sort of sometimes in seaside shops where they also might sell smoking paraphernalia and tie-dye uh, hoodies 
with drawstrings that don't really draw the string of the hoodie. <laughs> yes. And, and, and rugs that are made for you to hang on the wall rather than the floor. This is, that's where I'd expect to see uh, a, a still from this movie. I was bored out of my mind in a way that I haven't been uh, a movie for a, for a long, long time. Um, so dull. Even, even the opening that went on for ages, I, I was imagining we'd kick off with something huge. I mean, he can do anything. He's got all of these spectacular set pieces that he's, he proves throughout the movie. He, he's, he's got an eye for the spectacular. And yet we open with this tedious history lesson of handshakes that goes on for like six or seven minutes, then a dream that goes on for ages, and then we get into the story with the blandest performance by Dane DeHaan I've ever seen in my life. And as for Delavina, I don't even know where to begin with her one face of, I'm actually a strong woman. Here's my strong woman face. I, I found it annoying, boring, silly, like ridiculous. And, and by the time I got to Kara uh, saying the line, I've got a bad feeling about this, I was like, I'm done. Actually, no, that's not when I was done. When I was done was when four, what were we, four or five hundred years into the future and there's a strip club and they're playing four or five hundred years down the line, they're still playing the hip-hop version of Staying Alive by Wyclef. That was the moment where I thought, I am done. A strip club, we should say, that is owned by... Owned, owned my my by mate Ethan. Ethan Hawke, yeah. Uh, right. that, can you imagine the, the body blow that that was, how close we were to a pint? And this is part of a, a bizarre detour that the film takes halfway through that involves Ethan Hawke's character, that involves Rihanna as this shape-shifting burlesque dancer, that involves this crazy castle with this side story about preparing a feast for this angry king. None of it really moves the story on at all. But Besson just takes you there because it is the scenic route. He wants you to see all of these things that he's designed. The, the interesting thing about the original Valerian comics as well is just how influential they were in sci-fi. Like you can see when you read them, oh, that went to Star Wars, that went to Blade mm -hmm. Runner. So much of what's in there, gave birth, that went to Avatar. And he completely acknowledges these debts in this film in a really amusing upside down, back to front way by stealing stuff from the films that stole from Valerian, but in this really affectionate cheeky way. I mean, I just, you know, as I say, it just hit me in all the ticklish spots. Yeah, I mean, you've got a lot more patience than me. Uh, you, you know, I, I like to go into movies um, sometimes, especially with movies that are, are off, uh, you know, off the back of a, a book or a version of a book or a comic or whatever. If, I, if I've read the um, original stuff... It, it definitely changes my opinion, but I like to know as little as possible. I like to be able to go into a movie and just think, right, just do your thing. And I'll judge it off of that, not of, off of all these other things that aren't actually on the screen. And what was on the screen was just too much. There was just too much. It was, there was too much of one thing in terms of visuals and too little of the other, which is just performances. Give, give me someone I can believe in. I didn't care about anybody. Um, and, and Clive Owen who I, I like very much, same as same as Dane. You know, he was sort of quite panto-y, but he, he I enjoyed plays, his performance. The, 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 I enjoyed him because the at least he was doing... Yeah, but the, he was... He w it was like, his performance was like, this is really stupid. This is really silly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ham, ham it up. And his performance fit... Um, I yeah, I really struggle with it. He's, he's not quite Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. No, 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 no. We're not going there. <laughs> um, there's loads more. A bit. I mean, there really is tons. We might have to save some for the the podcast uh, version of this show. Um, this is from. Uh, let's have a look. Uh, this is from Jack Bool. Jack Bool. B O L. Good surname. This is uh, uh, on the email. He says just returned from a screening of Luke Besson's latest and was not prepared for the visual onslaught that greeted me. 
Valerian is a truly beautiful film, visually incredible, technically brilliant and utterly unique. An argument could be made that the lead's chemistry fails in terms of its believability, but when you're dealing with a city of a thousand planets and an accumulation of creatures, that can easily be forgiven. It can't. It's a shame that <laughs> it's a shame that the film has performed so poorly at the box office. But like Besson's own Fifth Element, I can see this developing a strong cult audience who will appreciate its bombastic nature. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the cult exactly following it starts saying. here. Yeah. Us two. <laughs> That's it. No, I'm sure that I'm sure there's plenty more. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do one more, and then then, then we'll move on. Um, this is from uh, Katie B. Um, so she says, "I love Luke Besson and really wanted to like this film. Leon's one of my favorite movies." Um, Unfortunately, uh, Valerian is the same as a lot of uh, Besson movies where he fills his sci-fi with extraordinary visuals and ideas that don't quite fit. There's much to like. The sweetly comic history of the station opening sequence, which I really hated. The beautiful realisation of the landscape and inhabitants of planet Mool. Which was wonderful. It wasn't. The interdimensional market and the standout performance by Cara Delevingne. It stood out for the wrong reasons. She is a fantastic... You're talking rubbish. <laughs> She's a fantastic mesmeric screen presence. Okay. Regrettably, it's way too long. Yes, with our apparent hero having no chemistry with his leading lady. Clive Owen doing panto. Thank you. And it's all weighed down by soapy sentimentality. A teenager next to us let out an exasperated and code-breaking just die already in one supposedly emotional death scene. I had to agree. It's such a shame. It has so much to love, but it is a hot mess. I like that. That should have been 45 minutes shorter. Love the show, Steve Tinkety Tonk, etc. From Dr. Katie. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's even split yes, people right, down in, the middle in, within in their own email. Um, so, I mean, in a weird way, I would say go and check it out because the audacity of uh, of the movie um, is 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 something to behold. And I, I actually made me think it. I think I stumbled across a theory of little film theory of my own. And listeners and Robbie, feel free to poo-poo this. And I haven't delved into it that much, but I just, it just occurred to me that our films that are called a name, name, and then followed by and the something, something of something, are they all rubbish? <laughs> because I, I was struggling to think of a good one. Percy Jackson and the, was it, and the lightning Alternate thief. Penguins, yeah. yeah. Benjamin Siddlegraph is probably the, the, the standout. Um, but yeah, I wonder if all of the ones with the and, and all the apostrophe movies, are they rubbish as well? Where the director's name has, is kind of in the movie title? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> if you know, let me know. I'm going to think of some more and we'll get into it in the podcast. In the meantime, there's potentially an even more... <laughs> I don't think you're going to say divisive. I don't No, it's think, not divisive. I don't think the emoji Divisive is not the word divisive. I'm looking for. I'm look, looking for something. If you felt passion from me in my reaction to uh, Valerian. Imagine the potential passion of a man whose job it is. He's forced to. I didn't have to watch it. He was forced to watch the Emoji movie. His name is Robbie Collin. And here is his opinion. Yeah. So before we get stuck into the Emoji movie, I want to kind of examine how civilization got to this point, which wow. I think is really important. Um, if you think back to the Angry Birds film, uh, news that that uh, animation that was another Sony animation was uh, was was being made kind of surfaced in, in 2012 which was about three years into the Angry Birds craze the film took another four years to produce and it was quite a long process like the Angry Birds film came out long after Angry Birds had been a thing the Emoji Movie's path to uh, the screen has been much much more streamlined I think Sony won a bidding war to make this film with two other studios uh, in uh, July of 2000, 2015, seven war, seven, sorry, seven figures they, they paid for the, the rights. And it's taken two years since then, uh, almost the month, to, to get the Emoji Movie from 
concept to uh, reality. And I remember a lot of the reporting at the time suggested that, you know, the Emoji movie, a film based on little mobile phone icons, it's the death of culture, it's the ultimate sellout. Uh, it's a kind of a new vapid and sickening low for animation. And what's really interesting to look back on these reports now is 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 just how um, naively underpowered those early fears were. I'm going to read you something that the director of the Emoji movie, Tony Leonda, said in an, an interview in the Sunday Times last week. Okay. Um, he said, our premise is, for the Emoji movie, do I have to change for the world to accept me or can I change the world for the better because of my differences here's the way the emoji movie addresses that concept it's set inside the architecture of a 14 year old boy's mobile phone and the emojis all live in this city called Textopolis not Monstropolis Textopolis and the way in which they do their jobs as emojis is they stand on this enormous grid and they wait around all day until the owner of the phone Alex decides which one he wants to use they then look up at the screen to see which one he's going to press. Then a large robotic arm will turn around and find the corresponding emoji person on the grid, who then has to pull the face that they were born to pull, which is the emoji icon. The robotic finger scans that face and then relays it to the mobile phone screen. Now, I, I can't, for the life of me, think of a more incomprehensible way you could turn the function of emojis on a mobile phone into a story. Anyway, you have this uh, one particular emoji called Gene, who's voiced by TJ Miller. Uh, he's the meh emoji, but he turns out to be very expressive in real life. The fact that he's so expressive causes havoc at the emoji um, factory. So he decides to go off to the cloud, which is the, the great digital beyond, to become reprogrammed and to become meh through and through. Uh, he's joined on this journey by two further emojis voiced by James Corden and Anna Ferris, uh, who want to go to the cloud for completely unrelated reasons. Apparently the cloud will solve all of these problems. It's never really explained why. Uh, meanwhile, there is a plot going on back at Emoji HQ in Textopolis uh, to delete Gene before he causes any more havoc. And here is that plot uh, unfolding. I am so angry. I really need to stay happy. Can we please lighten the mood? <laughs> No one can resist una fiesta! Olé! Not that happy. <laughs> We've only got four hours before Alex's phone appointment. If they find a malfunction on the phone, we are all gonna be wiped! <gasps> she said wiped! <laughs> Aim higher, Stephen. So we'll come. That was Patrick Stewart's voice there. We'll we'll come back to that wow. in a moment. But you have these two quests going on simultaneously. One of Gene trying to get uh, from one side of the phone up to the the cloud, uh, and the other in real life. Meanwhile, Alex's phone is malfunctioning, so he has to take it to get repaired. Now, July two thousand and fifteen was when Sony won the bidding war for the Emoji Movie. Let me tell you something else that happened in bidding July. war. Yeah, the bidding war to make this film. Oh. Let me tell you something else that happened in July two thousand and fifteen. Pixar released Inside Out. Now, I have no factual evidence to support this whatsoever, but I guarantee you that that bidding war was won by someone from Sony Animation going in and saying, we're going to make Inside Out, but with emojis, because that is basically what they've tried to do. The difference is when Pixar did Inside Out, uh, they kind of did this phenomenally complex uh, addressing of the, you know, the value of emotions, uh, the function of dreams and the subconscious. Um, the, the way in which someone's psyche can be destroyed and remade at the point of moving from childhood into uh, adolescence and then into adulthood. And fundamentally, I think, spoke to the beauty of transience and, and, and loss in life. You know, you can't be the same person forever. You have to grow and change. Uh, what The way in which the makers of the Emoji movie have done it is they said, OK, we're going to do a lot of product placement for apps and we're going to do some uh, jokes about poo as well. 
And Pooh, the Pooh emoji, is played by uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. Wow. And he's oh credited. You, you you remember the the Mark Strong butt game where people get course, special special credits at the end of um, the end of films. He's not just credited as Patrick Stewart. He's credited as Sir Patrick Stewart. And there's a kind of a glint of triumph in the fact that they've used the sir because it's like yes, we've ruined this guy with this film, and we want you to know that we know we've ruined this guy. It's not that it's toilet humour like in Captain Underpants, the the, the the poo thing. Also, I should say the poo character has absolutely nothing to do with the story. He just kept keeps on popping up. Um, to mean, crack a lot of basically single entendres about Pooh. And then at the very end, he does a joke about Star Trek because it's Patrick Stewart. But what you have oh, is wow. rather than actual toilet humour, it's just a Pooh talking about poo. Single it's sort entendres. Of, it's like pooception, <laughs> poo within poo. You referenced Inside Out, which yes. is almost ironic because you were becoming, you were working up a head of steam to the point of becoming that little anger guy. <laughs> And I was sort exactly. of cowering in a corner with with fear and, of, and 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 sadness. I'm kind of even loath to bring the conversation back to this film. But anyway, we've, <laughs> we've talked a lot about the poo. We need to talk about the, the way in which the film uses the apps as well, because this is where the real Inside Out overlap comes. Inside Out was a journey across a 14-year-old psyche mapped out into this terrain. Uh, the Emoji movie moves through uh, apps on the 14-year-old boy's phone. And you would think that because there's this parallel narrative Outside of the phone going on, the film might take the time to address, you know, the kind of concerns a 14-year-old might have with being online all the time, like, you know, cyberbullying or privacy or peer pressure or, or, or any of these things that could be addressed. Absolutely not. All that happens as they go through these apps, and they are all, by the way, branded apps. So the film is, you know, moving through, I know mentioning names is probably not appropriate, but it moves through all of these specifically branded apps many of which cost money to download, others of which cost money to continue using. And basically, the wow. way in which this hero's journey takes place is by going through all of these branded apps. So you have a film that is aimed at primary school children that is saying, you know, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. And it is contemptible beyond measure to me that the entire film could be basically built on product placement. Never mind that it is you know, beneath ugly to look at or that it is obsessed with the Patrick Stewart Pooh character and keeps bringing us back to this horrific creation. It's the way that you feel like you're being yelled at for 86 minutes to spend money online without any kind of addressing of what uh, a child's experience online might actually be that just makes this film feel so completely cynical. Um, you know, when also, I should say, when it's not ripping off Inside Out, it's ripping off the Lego movie. There's a lot right. of other films that it's doing. It doesn't have uh, an original thought in its head. The amount of money that has been expended on this, genuine animating talent that's been expended on this, you know, when, when other films struggle to get ma made, is heartbreaking. It makes something like The Boss Baby, which is a film that has been, you know, I feel has been trailing me around like a bad smell all year. <laughs> it, make that, it makes The Boss Baby look like the work of Studio Ghibli. I mean, wow. it is kind of, it chilled me to the core. It made me want to throw my iPhone down a ravine. You know, there's just nothing oh about gosh. this that's redeeming. I cannot imagine cinema this year um, getting any worse than this. There you have it, folks. I mean, that that is it. It must have just been your anger that kept you going through that 90 minutes. So <laughs> yeah, maybe that's all I can imagine. Because, you know, if it was me being the host, I would have just walked out. Like, I just, yeah, look, I'm not a film critic. I'm gone. But you had to do that. And I think we should have a little bit of love online or somewhere if you're following the show. Just just give Robbie Collins some love because you don't know what he's been through, guys. And he's, you don't need to know. Please. I mean, don't even go and see this film <laughs> no, ironically. Don't. Just understand that don't Robbie go to has see. looked into a particular abyss. It stared back at him and he, it was just horrific from start to finish. So there we go. I, I, th I feel we need to clean our mouths out. We need to shower and, and get into 
some classic movies. Yes. Because it's, it's time for us to pick our TV movie of the week. And I've, I've had a look down the long list. And as ever, there's so many great ones. I know there's three that I've already set my, um, my box to record. Um, but what, what, are you, uh, what are you thinking about in that list? I mean, I, actually, you know what? Let me see what people have got to say. Because there's, there's so many... This is a tricky week to guess. Yeah, and they're trying to guess you, aren't they? So yes. let's, let's see what Dev, Devon Torrey Bryant says knowing it's you. He says he says it has to be The Master, which is a disorientating and strange film featuring great performances from Joaquin Felix and a hypnotic Amy Adams, as well as one of Philip Seymour Hoffman's finest ever turns, uh, beautifully shot, tantalisingly ambiguous, lovely score from Johnny Greenwood, all around a real winner. Um, Craig Dunphy thinks you might go for Point Break, just in order to remember how cool the late Patrick Swayze was as Bodie and to forget the rubbish remake. Uh, Andy Smith also says Point Break has to be not seen it since my VHS copy went to the charity shop and always meant to uh, always meant to catch it. Uh, oh, no, I think that. Oh, yeah. He says um, he loves the fab references uh, to it in Hot Fuzz. Um, De- Daniel Pacey says Dexter Fletcher's surprisingly good directorial de- debut and his best so far, Wild Bill, for me. But he thinks that Robbie's going to go for Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Uh, the Turkish epic. Um, Nick Roundtree also thinks you're going to go for Once Upon a Time, slow-burning hypnotic crime drama. Um, Stephen Gillespie reckons you're going for The Master. Connor Bendel can never pass up a viewing of Willow, a proper family film. Um, And Mark Willen says easily Once Upon a Time, a classic in the making. Ian Johnston quite uh, aggressively says, I choose Frozen, and if Robbie has an issue with that, let it go. Robbie, what's I have, I have no issue with Frozen. Those are all excellent choices. Nobody guessed. I'm going no? to go for In the House, which is a film by a French In director called House. Francois Ozon, uh, who directed Swimming Pool and Eight Women, recently France and uh, Journey Jolie. He has a new film coming out later this year called L'Amont Double, which is a complete scream. But if you don't know Ozon's work, In the House is the ideal film to get started on. It's, okay. a, it's kind of sexy psychological comedy about a cynical French literature teacher who encourages a young student of him of, of, of his to write these first-person essays about what he uh, gets up to with a school friend. And the essays are such incredibly compelling reading and offer this amazing voyeuristic insight into the other kid's family's home life that the teacher becomes completely obsessed with it and he almost encourages the boy to do certain things in order to make the essays read even more juicily. It's a really, really funny and sharp uh, look at what kind of pleasure we get out of art and the, you know whether it's necessarily even highbrow pleasures are connecting with us on a lowbrow way. It's just, you know, all of Ozone's films are just funny. They're, they're, they're tense, but they're tense in a really pleasurable way. And it, if you want to kind of work up to something that is more extreme, like Lamont Double, which is coming out later this year, mm-hmm. this is a really, really good way in, in the house. And it's a sexy psychological comedy. Yes. Wow, it's like you don't get many of those. story of my life. Outside of Ozone, and obviously your personal experience, Ben. There's not a great deal of sexy psychological comedy. Yeah, I, I've never seen any of his work, and I'm going to check it out. And if you want to check it out, um, it's on at 1am on Sunday the 6th of August. Um, you don't have to stay up if you've got you know the recording ability, but it's on BBC Two. Um, as everybody knows, BBC Two, nice and easy to find. 1am to 2.40am, Sunday 6th of August. I think I'd maybe go for Wild Bill. Just I love Charlie Creed Miles and everything, and I love Will Poulter and everything. And Dexter Fletcher is just the man. Babyface. Directing. That should make everyone feel old. 
Um, so there we go. TV movie of the week. We've still got a bit of time left. I wonder if we can squeeze in one or two more reviews. What do you think we should yes, go for? Yes, let's talk about The Ghoul, which is oh, the yeah. debut film from uh, Gareth Tunley, who's an actor who's appeared in a number of Ben Wheatley films. He was in Down Terrace. He was the priest in Kill List as well. An incredibly sinister role in an incredibly sinister film. You know, it's, it, things don't shake out quite as simply as this, but there's a sense that there's British independent film before and after Kill List now. There's a real post kill list school of independent filmmaking that's kind of using ideas that came up in folk horror so films like the wicker man uh, and blood on satan's claw these ideas of like masks and rituals and the idea that evil can be in the land something that a writer called david southwell described as the ghost soil of britain that there's a kind of a nasty like a buried nastiness in the country that can <laughs> seep up around your feet sometimes right and in films like kill list of course and alice lowe's prevenge as well which is very much in the same tradition right. It kind of takes the folk horror ideas over to uh, the housing estate and the market town, kind of in a similar way to um, season three of League of Gentlemen did a while back and Scarfolk as well, the the Scarfolk books. It's tapping into something fundamentally sinister about the country while still keeping a real grip on real life that makes Mm -hmm. it all the more scary. The film begins with uh, Tom Meaton as Chris, this police detective who attends uh, a strange domestic shooting incident. Two householders have been shot. But the position of the bodies suggests that the, both of them kept moving uh, after they were shot through the head. And this doesn't sit very easily with him, but he does know that this character who's sort of orbiting the crime scene, a, a man called Coulson, who's played by Rufus Jones, appears to be uh, basically the ghoul of the title. He's someone who's ghoulishly inclined. He's drawn to macabre situations. And in order to find out more about this guy... Uh, Chris decides to go undercover as a psychiatric patient with the same uh, psychiatrist that, um, that Coulson uses in order to somehow gain access to his personal files in a hope of discovering what it was that happened at this uh, at this house on that night that the two people were shot. He, someone he seeks advice from is uh, a, a criminal profiler who's played by Alice Lowe, you know, a key figure in mm-hmm. this movement again. Uh, but the relationship they have is not entirely professional. It has quite a strange undercurrent to it, as we can hear very clearly in this clip. About you. Well, you were so unhappy a while back. I don't know. I'm getting there. <sighs> I should have seen it coming. It's not the first time. He's strayed a couple of times since uni. I loved Manchester, you know. Went back to visit a couple of months back. And just driving up the motorway, seeing signs to the north, felt so good. Don't think I'll stay in London much longer. I'd like it if you stayed. Is that a new dress? <laughs> yeah, it's actually. Do you like it? Yeah. I, I might take it back. So he comes away from this encounter with this idea that his cover story is that he is um, he has depression and he needs treatment from it from uh, Coulson's psychiatrist. When he starts to inhabit the cover story. It seems to take over his life to an extent that that is who he becomes. Now, to say much more about what happens in the film would be to defang it, because not knowing what's going to happen, and in a way not knowing even what has happened, is a crucial part of the experience. The film owes an awful lot to the work of David Lynch, particularly Lost Highway, particularly, particularly Mulholland Drive, as you can hear in the music from that. The um, the score was composed by Wayne Shepherd. Um, really, really kind of fun and uh, accurate riff on Angelo Badalamenti's work for Lynch, particularly in Mulholland Drive. There's a lot of those kind of weird low-angle crossfades between things that, that really can kind of confuse fantasy and reality very, very effectively. There's also a tremendous performance from the second psychiatrist, 
that, that Chris goes to see. Oh, Jeff um, McGovern. More than, yeah, Jeff McGovern. Um, just a phenomenal, I mean, funny, but also wildly sinister. And he refers back to these occult items, sigils, Klein bottles, all this strange stuff that's going on that really ties this into its folk horror roots. I think this is a, it's a film that's clearly been made on a very small budget, but it does have very big ideas. And it's scrappy and un- untidy. Normally that scrappiness works in its favour, I have to say. Occasionally it doesn't. Some of the Lynch stuff is maybe perhaps a little too broadly imitative. But it's, it gives you, with every passing moment, just enough to make you question what you've seen before and what you're going to see now. And it's a film that really stays with you. Uh, yeah, it keeps you on your toes constantly. I couldn't agree with that review more. All I would add is that I'd, I'd love people not to be put off by, you know, I've, I've heard certain things, people saying it's like an example of miserablest uh, British film, you know, like dark, dank and, and just no redeeming qualities. That's completely untrue. It's, it's, it's really exciting. It's, it's, it's very dark, no question about that. But what fascinates me about it is that it features so much, so many individuals that I consider comedy royalty in Alice Lowe, you know, Dan Skinner, who plays uh, uh, the other policeman. Um, uh, you've got Rufus Jones. Uh, Jeff McGiven is as warm as he is creepy, you know, yes, which, right. which is another thing that keeps you on your toes. And and the music, Wayne Shepherd. I mean, Wayne is, an, is another one. He, he was a, a musical comedian for some time. So there's, there's a lot of, there's something there to sort of, almost lull you into a false sense of security and then bang you know it hits you it's, it's definitely worth a watch also on comedy terms paul k yes of course who has this an of, unforgettable cameo yeah a pivotal monologue at a party scene in the middle of the film that kind of snaps all the themes into tight focus without you or, even, or splits them all right, apart depending exactly, exactly. where you're yeah i mean that's that's the beauty of it it, it it's almost, almost feels like it is what you make it but um definitely go and check out the ghoul if you haven't it's something special um so let's see if we can squeeze in one more what have we got Rob? yes let's talk about williams which is a documentary from morgan matthews who made a, a feature film called x and y a few years ago about this um, child prodigy math genius he had also previously made a documentary on the subject and many other TV documentaries in the past. I believe this is his first documentary for cinemas. It's the story of the Williams Formula One team, who are a family operation founded by Frank Williams in 1966. And they have had wildly varied degrees of competitive success over the time since then. It's the kind of film that could have very, very easily felt like a corporate video. But the way in which Morgan Matthews has assembled so many different voices with unique and very tightly focused perspectives on the Williams story. It kind of feels more like a family sort of Jacobean saga of tumult and intrigue. You have the the kind of official central interview with uh, with Frank Williams himself, but there's also his daughter Claire, who's now the deputy team principal. She is looking back through old family memorabilia and commenting on her own upbringing and how strange it is that she's, you know, one of the very, very rare women at the forefront of Formula One, but she is now in a pivotal position on that team. Uh, You also have Frank's late wife, Ginny, who talks through tape recordings that she made for an autobiography with a a ghostwriter at the time. And that is another completely essential voice uh, in in, in this tapestry of voices. David Brodie as well, a character that I wasn't familiar with at all. I think he was a racing driver. Um, But he is a raconteur with a very, very funny turn of phrase and is unapologetically a man of his time. And much more so than in uh, a fictional film like Rush, for example. You remember the Ron Howard thing about the James Hunt, Nicky Lauda feud. There is a sense of lots of big characters and big egos in play and at loggerheads for a lot of the time. There's an incredibly funny bubbling undercurrent 
of animosity towards Nigel Mansell, who also shows up. He was, of course, the, you know, the most famous Williams driver of them all. Um, he shows up, doesn't give, I have to say, a wildly charismatic interview. But the, the <laughs> stuff that other people say about him, it just kind of feeds into this idea of, you know, these are big 80s blokey egos clashing, clashing, clashing. You know, also, uh, Morgan Matthews has a tremendous eye for a great shot. The film opens with Frank sitting in his wheelchair and kind of listening to the roar of Formula One cars as if he's listening to music. And it ends on a shot that I believe is it's presented as if it was completely unstaged. Um, I believe it was completely unstaged. But you could not have staged a more perfect final shot for this film. It's not Senna, you know, it's not like uh, the Asif Kapadia documentary, which is completely the high watermark for that. I'm not someone who's interested in Formula One at all. And what Asif Kapadia got out of that story, it was this kind of, you know, mythic, tragedy that he built out of these old clips it's not quite on that level but it is interesting fascinating really whether you're interested in formula one or not i was really quite pleasantly surprised by this okay all right so worth a look worth a look um guys this has been a something else production for bbc radio 5 live and uh robbie has anything pipped the emoji movie to your movie of the week Do you know it's been such a tight squeak this week <laughs> i think i'm going to have to go for valerian because it's just it's an experience that you have to have in the cinema and you know what? i will go back hopefully to see it again in the cinemas but also to watch it again on Blu-ray, pick through the details. Oh it's my no, gosh. Well, you know what? I might go back in the podcast version of this show <laughs> to, <laughs> and to another keep thing. fighting you. Um, and, and there's still so much more to, to say on, on Valerian from all of our, our listeners as well. So there we go. That was the show. Um, I've noticed um, when you're on without me, Robbie, I, f- I feel like, I'm going to say this now, I feel like you're too apologetic about the, the, the quality of the show. Y- you're amazing every time you're on it. And when it ends, you're always a bit like, eh, yeah, I guess that was passable. No, that was, that was, that was prime, ro- that was, that was prime Robbie for me. Wow. Yeah. Good. You know, intelligent, opinionated, uh, up for a fight. You know, yeah, not not necessarily backing down on on, on anything that, that you you said or, or or genuinely believed. In fact, we can we can settle we can settle the Valerian thing in the car park in about fifteen <laughs> minutes. I thought that would uh, there is there be the is the perfect end to the to Perfect Friday. There is plenty more Valerian. I mean, people. It's fascinating that there was one email where the person was almost fighting with themselves within yes, the email because that's how I felt about Fifth Element. <laughs> this was a lot clearer for me. I just didn't enjoy any of it. Fifth Element. I, yeah, back and forth because it was ridiculous, but there still were things that I'd just never seen before in cinema. Yes. And and as long as that's happening, it can keep you kind of going, I guess. Um, here's an interesting one. Uh, not just because the writer of the email's name is genuinely Laureline. Um This is Laureline Van Kappel. And uh, she says, um, possessing the name Laureline, for which I blame my Belgian father, a huge fan of the comics. So it's actually named after Laureline. I've grown up with Valerian and Laureline all my life. Uh, But I have to say, my initial irk with this movie is the title, Valerian. Why not Valerian and Laureline? The original French may have just been Valerian, but the English translations have featured both. Um, Plus Laureline's hair. Laureline was a redhead. She's always been a redhead, so converting her to yet another blonde seemed wrong. But still, I kept hoping. It's now been several weeks since I saw the film. And my first comment is that it certainly is spectacular. The world which Luc Besson creates is huge and often against the backdrop, the ships and the characters look tiny. But then came the things I don't like. First, the story. Against this spectacular backdrop, uh, Besson gives us a very mundane plot. 
little more than find the item and return it to its owners. Consequently, we're just left to ride along and admire the world uh, which Besson portrays rather than bother too much about the story. Tinkety Tonk Old Fruits, Laureline Van Kappel in Frankfurt. Um, see, I didn't even... I, th- I thought the story was the weakest bit because I do hate those, hey, this thing, there's this thing, we've got to go and get it. Um, but then my problem was I couldn't relax into the, the backdrops either. I, I, there was nothing in there I felt. You know what you said about War of the Planet of the Apes, how it's like, if it's not this when it comes to mocap, yes. like, then you are in trouble. And I, I really feel that about Plan- the, the, the new series of Planet of the Apes. The mocap is incredible. I'm not saying it's really weak in this, but I, I, was, just, I was looking for something special. I was looking for something that was like going to blow me away, but... Yes, I mean, it's not like seeing Avatar for the first time. It's certainly not like seeing the new Planet of the Apes films for the first time. You know, you you notice the special effects, however incredibly expensive they have been to produce and however amazingly beautiful. And I mean, it is like the sugar plum apocalypse. I mean, it's just stuff, stuff, <laughs> stuff, 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 all colours. More all reasons colors, I colors. hate this film. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's that's what it is. And, and, you know, maybe the individual creature designs, the designs themselves are perfect. They're not quite as you know, weighty, lifelike as Caesar from Planet of the Apes. But that's the aesthetic. You know, it's for the same reason that I don't mind that the dialogue is a little bit rickety. It kind of fits. Mm. Okay. Well, listen, we, we will agree to disagree until the end of time, I suppose. Uh, maybe. I mean, I my, my opinion changed on Fifth Element when I watched it as a teenager and then watched it again as an adult. So yes, who knows? Right. Maybe I'll watch this when I'm an OAP and I'll love it. But I doubt it. Um, we missed a film because there was so much ranting in that We did. That we did. We what missed, did we miss? We missed England is Mine. England is Mine. Which is the uh, basically Morrissey, the early years. If you remember 10 years ago, there was a film called uh, Control by a director called Anton Corbine. Yeah. Yes, brilliant. Um, which was, yeah, it was the the early life. Tragically, the early life was the only life that Ian Curtis had because he died aged tw- uh, 23. But it was the, the early life of Ian Curtis, uh, the lead singer in Joy Division. But it was more than that. It was about his life, but it was also about a certain time and a certain place and a certain cultural movement. Now, one of the producers on that film, uh, Orion Williams, has, has come back to make England is Mine, which basically gives the same treatment to uh, Morrissey, the lead singer of The Smiths, uh, follows him in his early 20s. The difference, of course, is that Morrissey didn't die in his early 20s. He's still going strong now. So this film is very, very much focused on his uh, pre-fame period. It's co-written and directed by uh, Mark Gill. It's his first feature. And it stars Jack Loudon, the Browden, as we, we talked about <laughs> the in, in the show, uh, from, from Dunkirk. Um, it was also the closing film at the Edinburgh Film Festival earlier this year. The idea is that it wants to do, I think, the, the same as, as Control did for, for Ian Curtis. The problem is, is that everything in it happens before Morrissey kind of achieved anything. You know, the, the, the song title, England is Mine, comes from the Smith song, Still Ill. Uh, the lyric is, England is mine and it owes me a living. And there's this sense that Morrissey regards himself with then, of course, full name, Stephen Patrick Morrissey, everyone calls him Stephen. Morrissey, the the kind of, the sort of brand icon, right? Morrissey, the, the the brand, the legend, is about to emerge at the very, very, very end of this film, but it doesn't take us that far. So right. you've got this idea that there's this guy who regards himself as a great poet in the making, but the making is yet to take place. Um, he spends uh, all of his time, well, he's, he spends all the time doing lots of different things. He's trying to find bandmates in one way. He's also listlessly filing documents at an, the, the Inland Revenue. That's his day job. Uh, and he's writing angry letters to the NME as well, which we can hear in this clip. Dear enemy, Manchester is a lovely place if you happen to be a bedridden deaf mute. The local music scene is the sole preserve of troglodytes 
whose regard for subtlety and variation is comparable to a pig's passion for the slaughterhouse. The performance was the musical equivalent of a prolonged bowel movement, followed by an unexpected absence of toilet paper. In case I haven't made myself clear, it wasn't very good. <laughs> so that's kind of the tone of the film from right start to finish. You know, Jack Loudon doesn't look all that much like uh, the real Morrissey. That's not necessarily a problem in a film like this. The, the, the big issue for me is that the character, as written, is an enormous pain in the backside and it, it can never kind of get past this because whether it is trying to do this or not, the film ends up endorsing Morrissey's worldview. I should say this is specifically right. Morrissey, the character as portrayed in this film. But, you know, he is kind of going around sneering at people in the job centre and being very holier than thou, high-handed with everyone around him. There's this kind of manic pixie dream goth played by Jessica Brown Finley that comes into his life. She's an art student called Linda. And they strike up this friendship, but it seems like she is sort of in awe of him and he is very ready to take all of that awe on board. And because at this time in his life, he doesn't actually achieve anything. He doesn't deliver on this uh, this incredible self-regard that he has. The film becomes an incredibly draining and frustrating watch. And I was trying to want, I was trying to work out, you know, how could you have done this right? And I wonder if, um, you know, you're watching it and the, the, the guy is so wound up in himself. It almost feels like the right person to play this role would be a young Rick Mayle. So sort of young ones right. era Rick Mayle. Um, there's a film, uh, Michel Azanavicius, who directed The Artist. Um, his new film is about uh, Jean-Luc Godard, um, who is, you know, holy of holy figures yeah, in the of history of world cinema. And the weird approach that Azanavicius takes towards Godard is that he kind of turns him into this Peter Sellers-like figure of fun, but he does it in a way that capitalises on what makes Goddard so great and kind of sells you to sells it to you very softly and through humour, self-deprecating humour. Right. And I wonder if that's the way in which this film would have worked, because there's just nothing to kind of redeem this character mm. other than your knowledge of what he goes on to achieve. So as a standalone film, it is, my goodness, it is frustrating beyond measure oh, that's a shame because you know when I heard that clip I thought I did think oh cantankerous is it going to be almost like a sort of loving like Larry David kind of rent like a curb you know yeah but of, it, no it just he's really all, annoying it, but he's really quite funny yeah but it's actually just really annoying no 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 there's, there, there's nothing <laughs> to kind of soothe salve the irritation that you get from the way he conducts himself and, right. and as I say his attitude towards the people around him mm. is despicable and there's no sort of pushback from the film on that which is really irritating right and speaking of irritating and, and despicable despicable attitudes um i'm sure there was a million listeners who thought what on earth are you banging on about ben when you came up with your and theory okay like that it was live in the show so excuse me on that like it just it just came to me i think what i was thinking about was sky captain and the land of tomorrow yes right the world of tomorrow uh, yeah world of yeah. tomorrow there we go and then i started thinking percy jackson i said oh all these and films and of course i'm an idiot because <laughs> our amazing listeners who are way more savvy than me i mean this is i really like this one from Catherine way because she just starts it ben 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 Dot, dot, dot. There are loads of great films with this sort of title, like the entire Harry Potter franchise, Hello, and some Star Wars films. I, I have to admit, I, I've never seen any Harry Potter films. Harry Potter just sort of passed <gasps> me by. What? Yeah, and I'm sure that will bring me some abuse, but it's not because I have anything against it. It just passed me by, guys. I, I don't know. I think maybe it was like when I had babies and it just did. Yes, right. They were too young, you were too yeah. old to kind of naturally. I, I, I might it. go there. Um, uh, You'll end up watching them. I'm sure I will. Nick Lloyd um, says Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. 
yeah, okay. But that's slightly kind different of. because that's two that's character two names. I'm talking, talking about character like, name and character the name, and then this stupid like adventure that they go on. Yeah. And and when I say stupid adventure. Yes, I am wrong again because Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, yeah, fair play. Uh, and the Temple of Doom, although I thought that was quite weak. And then we get to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Ugh. Are you one of the defenders of that? I remember hearing well, something you know, I, 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 I was at my I, own headphones. I was at was the time you? and I've not rewatched it since seeing it in the cinema and I need to, to go back and see it. It's got aliens in it, bro. It's got aliens in it. That's all you need yeah, to know. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we but... do Nazis... We do indisplicable meets with Hitler that could never have happened. We do five-minute walks to Berlin from completely different cities, but we don't do aliens. You draw the line. I draw the line at aliens in Indiana Jones. That's just my opinion. Um, guys, thanks for all of those, and thanks for all the smackdowns. I need them, you know, because I'm not Mayo. I'm, I want in, in 20 years' time, I want to be Mayo, you know, so I need these smackdowns now so I can be on that Mayo level. Right now, I'm just warming his chair, uh, and, and, and that's it. Um, it's, it's a nice chair, though. He does... He does sit in a very comfy chair. Um, I, I want to share this one email with everybody just because there's a sort of tragic comedy to it that I haven't seen in any of the other emails. That came to and it's apropos of nothing. It does, you know, it's, it's linked to the film industry, of course, but um, there's something that I like about it. So before we get into DVD of the week, will you humor me yes, on this? Yes, please. This is, um, this is from Jim in London, uh, and I like it uh, because it's what he describes as a short report from an aspiring actor of recent experiences at the bottom rung of the film industry. I played a dog handler in a video for a rock group. I was really looking forward to seeing myself in the video, but in the final cut they kept the dog and edited me out. As Detective 2 in a student film, I had a few good lines, but my character was standing in the background and always appears out of focus in the film, rather like Robin Williams in that Woody Allen flick. I had a good part in an advert. We were waiting for our scene in an old RAF hut with a canteen that did a great cup of tea. I drank cup after cup. When I was called for filming, I said that I just needed a quick comfort break, only to hear the following. We haven't got time for that. Danny, you take Jim's role. <laughs> in another advert, I had to say the words, with hope in your heart. But for some reason, I just couldn't say it like the director wanted me to. And it became a would that it was a simple situation, um, with the director going from politely helping me to confusion and finally to exasperation bordering on fear. Ultimately, my lines were changed to walk on, walk on, and half my head appears in the advert for a nanosecond on the screen of a fruit-based device held by the main character. Still not funny. This week, I've had two auditions without success, too nice for one role and a bit too portly for the other. There did seem to be a little silver lining in that I sold two bedside tables on eBay on Tuesday. It turns out that they were bought by a film company. And while I have been striving for years for a good role, my bedside tables <laughs> will now be starring alongside Rosamund Pike in a film called Three Seconds, due out in 2018. That's from Jim in London. Isn't no, that brutal? <laughs> stitched up by your own bedside table. So, youngsters, if you're thinking about getting into the industry, there's just just a number of pointers. Just you just need a thick skin, and I know how it is, Jim. I go for auditions all the time and get and get knocked back. At, but you know, if you've seen your tables come out and star with someone of, of Rosamond's level, I mean that that's a body blow. But I still think Jim can bounce back from that. Maybe the tables can give him a leg up on the next job. They can put in yeah, a good and work. plus he can write situation comedy quite right. clearly do you know what I mean so you know maybe you should just write your own roles Jim but thanks for listening anyway we, we, we love every single one of our listeners you guys are brilliant and you make the show um, so it must be that time really because it's it's Friday you know I don't I can't go any buttons further down on my shirt it's ridiculous now I'm I, I'm just so loose it's incredible I, I think it's time 
for the one and only DVD of the week. Yes. You know what? On, on the 4th of August, 1693, Dom Perignon took the first ever sip of a sparkling white wine we now know as champagne. Come quickly, he cried. I am drinking the stars. But even having squeezed the stars themselves into a bottle, that old monk would never have dared to dream that one day the astral magnificence of Lenny Von Dolan, Bud Court and Maxwell Caulfield could be contained within a single disc. Will Robbie Collin laugh in the face of Dom Perignon himself by making 1984's Electric Dreams his DVD of the week? And what would you choose? Ian Johnston says scrolling down the list, it appears to be another tough week. Society, The Handmaiden, The Hunt, all extremely great for different reasons. But then the final selection on the list hit me between the eyes as top choice. Not often enough is the title DVD of the week awarded to the most fun and frankly most entertaining offering. And Ben Wheatley's star-studded Free Fire is that in absolute spades. Robbie will go for The Handmaiden though. Joseph Lear, say, Joseph, Joseph Lear says, almost certainly The Handmaiden for me. My first trip into Korean cinema and it didn't let me down. Tony O'Rourke thinks uh, Ghost in the Shell was a very underrated film. Uh, he says, I'm a fan of the original manga comics and the original anime movie. And whilst it does cover more of the shell rather than the ghost, in the story is still a very good adaptation. Harry Ward says The Handmaiden. Sumptuous, exhilarating piece of cinema. It's got to be Robbie's pick. The film's transgressive feminism has already been well documented, but its biggest joy is that it playfully reimagines an age-old story all too hard to find in these cynical times. True love triumphing over it, triumphing over adversity. And Alex Brown just says, if he doesn't pick The Handmaiden, is he even Robbie Collin? existential question there at the end Robbie well an existential question with the most predictable answer on any of these that I've ever done it is The Handmaiden it has to be The Handmaiden you know, Free Fire is an excellent Mine. film yeah, same. it's got to be The Handmaiden and the, the email that we had there about that being someone's introduction to Korean cinema mm. just sent shivers down my spine because that's exactly the way that you want to get into you know find new areas of cinema is via films like this it's actually the biggest non-Bollywood foreign language film in the UK since 2012 so it has wow. really struck a chord with people oh, in good. cinemas. If you didn't see it in cinemas, if you did see it in cinemas and want to experience it again, of course, now is the time uh, to do so. It's this erotically charged mystery in which these two confidence tricksters pose as respectively a handmaiden and an eligible bachelor in order to defraud uh, a Japanese heiress of her fortune. However, around a third of the way through the film, the story, the, the entire chessboard that it's set out on basically gets shaken wholeheartedly and you have to recalibrate everything you think you know. It's, it's closely based on uh, Fingersmith, the, the book by Sarah Waters, but transposed from Victorian England into uh, occupation-era Japan and Korea. It's a move that you wouldn't think would work in the slightest until the move is taking place and you just see how perfectly and naturally the story's themes and ideas just bed in. It's, as you said, the, the, there's this certainly a, a very kind of a ripe erotic charge to yeah, it it's, it's a, quite a fetishistic film mm. there's a lot of crinkling fabrics and creaking leathers and tightened ropes and all this kind of stuff going on and it's also voyeuristic in that it's about the way in which uh layers of inhibition and pretense and um 
you know, false fronts that you can give to people fall away in these supposedly private moments in which people will spy on you and discover who you really are, unless you might know you're being spied on and put up a specially secret yeah. false front to turn things on their head. And it's all very exciting and complicated in that kind of way. It's great that there's male desires and female desires. It's not, it's not the usual just male gaze that we're seeing sexuality via, you know, heterosexual male gaze. There's... there's there's all I mean there's, there's something for everyone let's it put it is. that way there's, there's, it's a real kind of <laughs> buffet of uh, yeah. desire I think is service in this film yeah. very very efficient. it's genuinely exciting and and um, I mean if you if you've not seen it and you don't know about the structure of the movie there's 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 a whole I mean, there's a whole essay you could write just on the structure of this movie and the way it pulls the rug out from under you. Yes, I'm not even right. really talking about twists. I'm talking about the, you know, the sh the sh the shape of this movie is is very, very clever and very, very satisfying. I right, and really if you, satisfying. If you've seen Park Chan Wook's Old Boy, for example, that's yeah. a film that again traded. And that's why I went to see this movie because of Old Boy. Yeah, right. And there's world upending twists in that. Who mm. is watching? Go. Yeah. And then that happens. Say what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that happens quite often in The Handmaiden, and 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 not perhaps in the same sickening, disturbing way as Old Boy. Definitely but just ways. There's no octopuses. I mean, well, but there is. You're oh, no, forgetting. There is. Uh -huh, yeah. Oh my let's, god! Let's not forget. But this is the amazing thing. This house that the place is set in. Of course, you've there got is. these. I mean, it's kind of like if you the Bates Motel from Cycle has you know the kind of three tiers the yeah. the ground level where everything you know you present the front that you want to be presented to and then there's the, the upper level where crazy manic voices are going on then there's mm -hmm. the kind of churning horrible cellar and uh, Slavoj Žižek mapped the kind of Freudian picture of the psyche onto this so you have like this the ego the super ego and the id I'm sorry this is kind of rambling anyway the, no no, no. The, I'm in I'm in, I'm in. The, the same kind of structure like using architecture to talk about psychology is what works in this house yeah and down in the cellar there's some horrible wriggly creatures uh, which do horrible wriggly things. Yeah, it's very true. And similar to Old Boy, it, doesn't it feel like one of those movies you can squidge? I, I don't know how, there's not really a cinematic term, but you know when you see movies that are so visceral, you feel like you can touch them in some way. Yep, yep. That's how, that's how this film uh, feels and I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. So that's your DVD of the week and I promise, well, I'm not going to promise, but I'd like to think maybe one day down the line me and Robbie will do a kind of uh, hip-hop a second bassoon sampling version of the DVD of the week music, just to just to just to freshen things up a bit. It's you waiting know? to happen. You never know. Oh, Robbie, sorry, I've got a, I've got a phone call. I better take this. Hey, uh, hello. Yeah. I'll... Okay. Cool. I'll be there in two seconds. Cheers, mate. Ta-da. Hey. It's um, Ethan Hawke. We're gonna go for a pint. So can I? Can I... Mm, let's let's talk off air. Thanks for listening, guys.